All right, this is episode nine of Pals with Bill Wadman, and I have Evan Jones here. Hello. Um, you are now. How would I was thinking about this earlier? You have your PhD is in computer science, technically. That's correct. Would you call yourself a computer scientist? Uh, probably not. No. Um, what word would you use? I use a software. I say I'm a software engineer. Oh, you do. Okay. Yep. And you don't. But you work very much in the database realm. Well, Did? uh, yeah. Okay. So my, my PhD in computer science is, um, uh, I was doing work in databases and, um, that was how many years ago now? I don't even remember. Uh, this was, uh, I started my PhD in 2007. So that must mean I finished in 2011. So that was seven years ago now, basically. That's a pretty fast, uh, um, finishing your PhD, isn't it? Uh, yes, it's on the faster end. Um, yeah, it was it was a little bit more than four years, which is definitely fast. Six ish is sort of more standard, I would say. Yeah. Um, but I did do six total years of grad school. I did two years of a master's degree at the University of Waterloo, where I did my undergrad as well. Um, so you know, to a certain extent, I've spent a lot of time in school. But to go back to your original question, so uh, I did database work for my PhD, and then since then, I have arguably done mostly general purpose software engineering, although it right. tends to be sort of, uh, I, I would like to heavy. Yeah. I would like to believe my, my specialty tends to be on sort of lower levels of the software stack data related at the very least. Yeah. Which, I mean, which makes sense. Cause a guy like you with your pedigree is not going to be cheap if they just want somebody to write, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like you're, you you are a specialist <laughs> in many ways. Uh, uh, yes, that is true. Yeah, so definitely. they might as well hire you for what it is that they specifically need, you know? Yeah, I, I, I guess that's true. Although it's funny because like I'm definitely not necessarily doing work that is directly related to what my PhD was in anymore. And right. I tend to, the stuff that I do um, on a day-to-day basis is, is, I would argue, somewhat generic. But um I'd like to argue I still have additional value in that I've been doing it for a while. I'm I'm relatively good at it. And so I think at this point in my career, I'm actually getting more involved in, uh, uh, let's call it technical leadership, for lack of a better word, which is... You want to be a manager. You're, well, you no, are a manager. no, okay. definitely not a manager. I am not managing people. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily... Um, at some point in my career, I might end up doing that again. I did it for a year while I was working at Twitter. But you like your hands um, on. But yeah, I like I like doing technical work. Um, I think that's where I, um, I think that's where I'm really, let's say, um, adding value. That is, my skills are are being uh, applied the best. But at this point, I am doing more. Um, so what I mean by technical leadership is a little bit more um, helping a team of people be successful rather than I'm sitting down and, and writing software that is solving the problem. I am, I'm still doing some of that, but I'm also doing a heck of a lot more of like, um, let's call it design review or, um, helping with particularly thorny issues that come up or yeah. some of those sorts of things. Do you like things. that role? Yeah, I do actually. It's been, it's been, um, does it make you feel like you're an elder, uh, <laughs> <laughs> software designer yeah there's definitely uh, definitely occasionally um so it's actually funny so let me even uh, at your age how old are you 31 i'm 36 although i turned 37 in two weeks so, i mean 37. at 36 in many ways in that industry 
you are a middle-aged developer. Well, and I think that's usually that's that's mostly because the software industry has been growing so quickly that right. most of the people who are in it specific are to young. your industry in some ways. Yeah, that's right. Um and it's funny because right now so I've been working at a company here in New York called Bluecore. Um it's startup in New York, about 150 employees. Uh the company's been around for about 5 years. I've been there for about 2 and it definitely skews a little bit on the young side. So I think in on the software engineering team, there's about 40 or so people. And I think there's about one, two, about five or six of us who are, let's say, 35 and older. So like it definitely skews a little bit junior. Um, so like definitely that's been one of the work environments where I've been like, oh, I am. I'm actually one of the oldest people here. I'm definitely not. Right. It used to be, you know, 10 years ago, I was like, oh, I'm one of the youngest people here. And I'm, yeah. I'm at the point where I'm like, oh, God, I'm actually the old, old man in the crowd. Well, and you're, so you're, you're here now, but you're Canadian. Yes, correct. Uh, you, you have U.S. citizenship or is it, how does that work? I do not. So I am a permanent resident. Yeah. Um, I'm married to an American. And so that was a relatively easy process for me. Right, right. Um, you can tell by the pronunciation the process. Of process. <laughs> yes. But, but so, so you're taking a good American job by being here is what you're telling me. I suppose you could put it that way. Yes. <laughs> but so you grew up in Canada. Do you remember how you first got the bug of computers? Were, so were you always a software guy? Was it ever uh, a hardware thing for you? I'm, I'm definitely, um, it's funny. So one of the, we have a, a book reading club at work. And right now the book that we're reading is a book that um, I'm actually reading it for the second time. It's a book I really like. It's called Unlocking the Clubhouse, Women in Computing. And it was a study done at um, Carnegie Mellon uh, 10 years ago by um, at the computer science department. Anyway, it's about the issues around why are there so few women in computer science in computing. And one of the things it talks about. Grace Hopper. What? Pardon me? <laughs> I said Grace Hopper. Uh, yeah. And a little, one of the, one of the, um, one of the things it talked about is sort of the, uh, I think they call it the magnetic attraction of boys to computers at an early side. And like, where does that come from? And sort of exploring that idea. And it's, it's, it's interesting to me reading this book. I'm like, Oh God, that was me. Um, I am definitely, or have been somewhat unhealthily obsessed with computers for uh, a very long time. I think my first, my first, the sort of first ex memories that I have around it fairly concretely is um, my parent, my parents are both school teachers. My dad bought an Apple IIe and I think it was because they were getting them at his school and he felt like he really needed to sort of learn it or understand it or something like this. Or, or maybe I have two other brother, two brothers. Maybe he thought this was going to be something useful. So you were pretty young then if it was a two E I'm trying to remember how old. Yes. So that would have been eight, something yeah. like that. Nine, 10, somewhere in that range. Um, uh, yeah. Something like that. And, um, so like there was a fair amount of like, Oh, like using the word processor on there or, right. uh, playing video games or whatever. But the logo, the, the memory that I really have, there was definitely the logo. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Um, but the memory I have is my dad had a couple of these books that were aimed at children that were about computers and like, how do they work? And they had, um, Apple basic programs in them. And I have a memory of sitting there and typing in, these Apple basic programs out of these books. Did you understand what you were typing? Uh, in retrospect, probably not. Right. Um, enough to that, like, if there's a place where the program prints, you know, hello, hello, name. You know that print. I could edit name and yeah. type Evan instead. Right. Um, or enough to know that, you know, but I think that, anyway, there was, um, 
So that was definitely one of my memories was, uh, or one of my memories about it was, was taking this book and sitting there and painstakingly copying these things in and hitting run and having it do something Sure. and being like, wow, this is, I don't know what, like I said, I'm not sure I really understood what it was doing, but, but wow, this is, this is doing something. That's interesting. Like, how does this work? What's it mm, like? 20 go to 10 or right. And there was all these crazy things. And like, some of them were like, some of them were little games or some of them were other things. And it was just like, Oh, I'm going to type in the next one and see what it and does. Basic is not a particularly pretty language, particularly not at that era. It yeah. was, I, I don't have a whole lot of recollection about it, but it was, um, anyway, it was definitely not. Do you have any basic skills now? I, uh, does anyone use basic? I don't think, I think it has lost favor. It was popular for a, a long time as a language to teach people how to write computer programs. Yeah. But even now they would use something else. They no. would use some building block kind of thing. Some, to, yeah, there's either a few a that visual are, kind of thing, right? There are some that are aimed explicitly at, at people who learned how to program. Um, or else you would use like Python or JavaScript, which are like real programming yeah. languages that people when, actually in use. In the for early nineties, when I was in college and taking some CS classes, it was, Turbo Pascal. Yeah, Pascal was popular for a while. That's also basically gone at this point. Yeah, which is really interesting how these things come and go. I wonder, I mean, that's a question I guess we can insert <laughs> here, but just the idea that computing is moving so fast and software engineering is moving so fast and these waves come and go so quickly that is anyone archiving languages that are quote unquote dead? You know, I'm sure there is some person in some computer science thing at some university who's still obsessed with turbo pascal and is maintaining a compiler almost certainly yeah, um, yeah right. or at the very least there are a bunch of people who are retro computing enthusiasts who are maintaining computers like people or building new emulators to be able to write or, or just even just to make sure you can still run these old apple programs or right. amigas or whatever these old machines that no longer exist basically um, the internet archive is one that has done some work around this um, I think that they have a web page that like you can just go to the web page and it like boots an old Macintosh. Yep. They do uh, in the web page. And then Isn't that insane. Like just think about what's in the layers that are involved in doing that. Oh man. Yes. Run, that is... Running an emulator of like a Motorola 6100 processor, whatever the hell is 6102 or whatever the hell it is inside of like a JavaScript window or something, whatever the hell it's running on. Absolutely. It's it is insane. It is an incredible tower of inefficiency in some yeah, ways. Well, okay, yeah, yeah. burning burning so much computing that is it's pretty unbelievable so you so you were you were playing you played with the apple two. yeah so that was that was definitely where i got started was was playing with the apple two. um i don't we had that for a long time and i don't remember exactly what happened but at some point we had to get a new computer or we wanted to get a new computer, or I encouraged, I don't remember. But basically, the next computer in the house was a 486 in like DOS machine. Beige box, Windows yeah, thing. Yeah, DOS, DOS and Windows 3.1. Yep. Um, and uh, were you the main uh, person in the family who was the interested one in computers? Yeah, I think so. Yes. Yeah, it definitely was. Um, okay. So, I, like I said, I had two older brothers. Um, my oldest brother definitely liked to play video games a heck of a lot. And so we certainly played a whole lot of computer games on there. And then my middle brother certainly used it and played video games occasionally, but, but it was, it was really the two of us that used it the most. And I would say probably me substantially more. Um, and I think, you know, some of that early stuff was interesting 
in video games, I think was a lot of it. And some of it was just fiddling with stuff. Um, I think the thing that really sort of cemented my interest and took it from being like, oh, this is sort of interesting to, to, to fiddle with occasionally or play computer games on was um, finally getting a modem. And this is in the era that was basically BBSs. pre-internet and dialing up all these <laughs> mm. random BBSs. Sure. And I, I, uh, I remember for... Um, for a long time before Wait, we had the modem. How fast modem? Was it 1244? 14.4. See, I, I was getting into 1200 bods. So oh man, I got much yeah, earlier 14, than 4 me. was a big deal in '93. I bought a US Robotics 14.4. Oh, what the hell was it called? They had a brand name, but it, but yeah, when it was external, we yeah. had an external modem, yep, and it was sure. definitely US Robotics. Um, yeah, so the uh, we had this in. I grew up in Calgary, Canada. There was this paper in Western Canada that was free. It was distributed in like. I don't know, bank lobbies and other businessy stores or something. Uh, it was called the computer paper and, and they had like computer news and lots of advertisements. Sure. It was, you know, that's how they make a free newspaper. And the BBS is with list in there. And they had a page that was all the BBS listings. And I remember staring at this page for like <laughs> three months and being like, I don't, there's so many of these things. What's on them? I don't know. Yeah. And then I think Much I got it junk as, on most of them for the most part. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and then I got the modem as a, as a gift at some point, maybe it was Christmas, maybe it was my birthday. I don't remember. And it was like, oh my god, I can I can start dialing these things, and then that was a whole new. Did you have world a phone of, line for the modem, or was it like sharing it? And originally, it was shared, but I think it was fairly quickly that there was enough usage of. I don't remember if we had. We definitely got a second line at the internet era, which was shortly after the BBS era in my house. Yeah. Um, but there was enough usage at some point where it's like, okay, we need a second phone line. Um, so. <laughs> I think that was only when the internet showed up. Now, were you downloading wares at the time? And probably, I, I were you playing you know, trade wars? What were you doing? Yeah, so there was definitely some of the games. I, I, I think some of it was just all of the above. Basically, it was like, wow, like how do you even download files and FidoNet messages to other people? Yeah, right. And then there was like, <laughs> right, it was there was discussion boards, and then sure. there was live chat, and there was you know games and all sorts of things. It was like, oh wait a second, this is not just making a machine do some stuff and print some stuff on the screen. This is like, wait, I can communicate with, with other right. people. There's like a world out there and, and, and I can learn about it. I can go download random shareware programs and, yeah. and like, wow, there's just so much of this stuff out there. This is crazy. I, it, it, it's, I feel like a lot of people who got into this stuff after the sort of internet revolution of the late nineties, who don't understand that there was a very small subset of people basically doing a lot of that stuff, even though the internet was there since the seventies yeah. outside from like at their homes, the BBS thing was its own whole little world. Yeah. And, and it's, and it was a, and it was a subculture that I don't know how long it lasted. I'm sure there's historians who can tell you better there's stories documentaries about, this. about it. There, yeah. There you go. It's like 10 years, uh, 10 or years. Something. Right. Exactly. And, and which is uh, nothing in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. And, and, uh, and it was funny because it was kind of like the internet, except it was these weird isolated like islands. Yep. And some of these islands had one phone line. And so there was all you could do was post messages and files. And then the next yeah. person could log in and yeah. you'd get them. Wait for some other to ones had multiple so lines. And so you had this world of real time chat or yep. other things. that was just like, and they know, would talk to each other at night. Sometimes you could like send messages between them. And the, yeah, it, it's, it's amazing that any of that stuff worked. Yeah. You yeah. know, uh, so, okay. So you're doing that. And then by the time you're a teenager, the internet is starting to really click. Yeah. So I think same thing, uh, or, or, you know, for either from one of these 
publications I was consuming or, or whether it's from uh, some of the BBSs, I was aware that the internet was a thing that existed and I was in, um, and uh, in fact, I think I had, we had connected, or I had connected to it. We had connected to it through some of the old fashioned, let's say terminal interfaces like, sure. um, you know, your local university Gopher or whatever would finger would, and all that. Right. Stuff. And, and, um, all those and protocols that was, are dead now, huh? The one that still exists, FTP, FTP still exists. Sure. It is the bit of a bane of my existence, but that's, uh, that's another, another, story. another conversation yeah, for later. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, but yeah, all the original, original program protocols are gone. So there was some, there was some contact with it through some of these terminals. So were you things. messing around with that stuff pre web? Probably, let's say, or overlapping just, with early just web. at the early web for 94, sure. 95, I, 96. Yeah. Something like that. I remember, um, probably the first again with some of this early experimentation with this stuff through some of these command terminal things probably was like the links web browser or whatever the terminal based web browser um, that would just show you the text of web pages and, and, and frankly not really getting it. And, and, and the explosion of interest of the internet in general. And, and for me personally was really like, Oh, the web and the graphical web. And, and so the you were a teenager at this point, high school, this must've been, Either like grade nine or ten. So, so yeah, you hit it just right in some ways, age wise. Because you, I mean, you were playing with computers, but like at the point at which it exploded, you were old enough to jump on before a million other people had jumped on. It was early, but it's funny. I think, um, I, I think there's been enough change in computing that every time in the past forty years or whatever has been the right time. Because it's been this uh, exponential growth for that whole 40 years. So, for example, one of the ways that I was like, oh, this timing is totally terrible, is I just started, uh, I started university in 1999, which was just basically the beginning of the dot-com boom. And then the, like, total crash of the dot-com stuff happened like while you, I was in college. Right, and so that you, was like, oh, my God, we missed it. Yep, yep, yep. Like, none of us are going to have jobs when we're done in four years. Or, like, holy crap, we could have been, you know, millionaires or whatever if, if we, we had three years older. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, but, and, like, of course, in retrospect, if you look back, it's like, holy crap, actually. Like, I could have, you know, if you get lucky in this industry and you join the right company at the right moment, that, you know, there's been, a, there's been plenty of those over the time that since I have graduated, whether it was Google or Facebook or, sure. like, Amazon or any of these companies, really, that are now recognizable names, you know, could have joined them at any point in the last 15 years. And, and so when you're in school though, you were at Waterloo, which was for those of these don't know, this is near Toronto, right? Yeah. It's about um, like, let's say two hours outside. And of it's a Toronto. technical school. That's not that old. It was well, started in the 70s. Clear, it's or something? not actually a technical school. It's, it's a, not, it's a general university. It has, I don't okay. know, 30,000 for its engineering department. It has a very good engineering department and a very good math and at this point, computer science. So yeah, it's, and it's well known. It has it's well known for its technical and classes on school. Napoleon. I'm assuming. <laughs> Why is it called Waterloo? Probably is that the location? Is um, that the location? Yeah, the city is the city is called Waterloo. Okay. Uh, and actually, the history is it was originally called New Berlin. Uh, it has a large German immigrant population in the area. And then and after World War II? You got it. They, really? It might have been World War One even, but basically, yes, they decided, huh? Maybe we shouldn't have this town. So now it's called Waterloo. <laughs> see that's fascinating yeah. uh and and how does the how does the education system work 
you know, not going crazy in depth, but like you're in high school there. Yep. Yep. You want to go to Waterloo, right. which is the equivalent of going to MIT undergrad, like that kind of level. Sure. Let's, okay. let's say that. So why you, why are you special? Like, you know, what, how does, how does that work in, in Canada? Is it, uh, like here it's SATs and you yeah. apply and like all that stuff. Right? Yeah. So, so Canada's small enough that there was no, at least at the, I, it may have changed the era that I was doing this. There was no standardized testing of any, uh, there was no, no nationwide standardized testing for college admissions. I think, um, I knew people who did the SATs actually, because they were applying to us colleges and, and I never sure. did. Um, I think Canada is small enough that they, there are provincial exams. And so you, you know, would take them at grade nine, you take them at grade 12 and, uh, acceptance is basically based on, you know, essays, some additional application materials, and then your standardized provincial test scores. And again, Canada is small enough that a university like the university of Waterloo was like, okay, we know I was from Alberta. You know, then we know Alberta schools. Even Here's the top what the 5% for math or whatever it is. So we'll like, you know, right. look at people who are above some cutoff or something like this is okay. probably what they were doing. When, when you got accepted though, were you like, woo? Um, yeah, stuff. absolutely. I was, it was definitely the school that I wanted to go to. And so, um, and at the time, yeah, I mean, obviously you wanted to go for computer science, but how did, what did you imagine your life being eventually? Yeah. Well, technically actually I ended up doing the computer engineering program, which was actually slightly different. So a little more hardware. Um, correct. And uh, the other difference is that, um, at least the university of Waterloo, the computer engineering department is part of the engineering faculty and it's an engineering degree. Uh, the computer science program, uh, at this point has been split off. It's now its own school. So it's basically its own faculty. At the time was part of the math department. Really? Um, and well, so, that's old school. Yeah. And so you get like a bachelor of math in computer science. So the, that almost feels like a holdover from another time. I, I mean, I think that's part of the reason that it's now a separate school is, is that it has grown outgrown the math, um, the math department. Um, but the, so yes, the, the main dif- the main practical difference is um, it's an engineering program, so I had engineering requirements. I had to do you know the same basic physics, chemistry, uh, math uh, right. that any of the engineering degrees have to do. There's actually other, a couple of other funny requirements, like there's an engineering economics class that was always a bit funny. Um, how much it costs to build this bridge kind of stuff? Uh, time value of money, basically. Yes. Yeah. It's basically, <laughs> if you're planning a project like building a bridge mm-hmm. and you have to loan this much money or you're building a factory and it's going to have this payback period, like which of factory A or factory B we'll, should you we'll build? We'll get to how useful that was when you started looking for VC money for your startup <laughs> yeah. later. Yeah, we can but, definitely talk but, about uh, that. <laughs> um, so, so more hardware. Uh, the other difference that in retrospect probably has not mattered, but um, is, is kind of interesting is that in Canada engineering is a um i don't know exactly what the right term would be but it's a licensed profession uh like being say a medical doctor or a sure. lawyer you can't be an engineer without yeah being it's the same a, in the u.s for some engineering that's correct yeah civil engineering and that kind of, but electrical i don't think you Absolute, need to answer yeah. uh, I, I don't good question don't know yeah. but the in canada they're very um they've been somewhat militant about it so i think uh for example if you can't be a university and have a software engineering program without meeting the basic engineering requirements. So, okay. um, so anyway, so that's part of, that was, that was some of the differences there, but, um, yeah. So d- did you imagine yourself doing more hardware stuff or, or more general sort of computing? No, I always, I was always really interested in the software part of it. I think the part of 
doing computer engineering that I did think was interesting was having a better understanding of that and potentially having the flexibility that that would give you. Yeah. And so, you know, there's definitely a trade-off. It also means I did less software stuff than somebody in the pure computer science program would have done. Uh, but but th- it's I, interesting as a software developer back in the day when people were writing an assembly, right? And I know certain super low level stuff they still do. Yep. But, but you are much closer to gates and transistors and stuff there yes. than you are now. Yes. And correct. the languages keep getting higher level. That's correct. As time yes. goes on. So in some ways, the knowledge that you have at that low level is even more abstracted than it ever was. And to a certain extent, less useless uh, or more useless. More sorry. useless. Yeah. Um, because in some ways the, those things are so abstracted now in so many layers of stuff that the engineers who are designing the chips and you guys who are writing software are speaking different languages would be the cheesy way to yep. put it. But like you're in a completely different world. Yep. It's true. I, I think um, that's very, very true. And in particular, like I've said, this, the, I'm sort of doing some more like, let's say, general-ish software engineering stuff in my career at this point. And so um, it's certainly very, very true. It's still been, I've still appreciated doing that many times uh, in my career because I think in the pure computer science program at the University of Waterloo, I wouldn't have had the experience of wiring circuits. So has that been helpful? Occasionally it's been helpful in terms of like understanding maybe Fixing home wiring microwave. or like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. No joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure. No joke. Absolutely. Or some of those things, um, or under having a better understanding of how the hardware actually works. I think it's, it is absolutely useful if you are doing any software that, um, that needs to care about performance or, um, or some of those sorts of things that do that do happen from time to time. So, and database I, stuff, which we'll get into in a minute, is like, in many ways, all about performance. That's correct. Yeah, and so and so that stuff. There's a there's a where, where I don't the know speed of light another, actually becomes a limitation at times. Right. There's another software engineer that I guess has done a lot of writing and like has a consultancy and does talks and stuff about this. I like to call it mechanical sympathy. Basically, says that one of the things that that you care about when you're writing high performance software is you kind of need to have this uh, sympathy with the machine, the sympathy with the computer. So you have to sort of understand a little bit about how it works in order to really write high performance software. Yeah. If there's latency um, or there's bottlenecks, you have to not just understand them, but like understand that it's a physical thing. Right. That's the weird thing about software. It's such a strange thing because it is ultimately just information, and but that information is being processed by something that follows natural laws. There's, there are, there are physical devices at the very end of the chain and, and yeah. And part of what makes it interesting and challenging all at the same time is the fact that it is sort of this invisible stuff, uh, that is just stored somewhere and becomes more so with clouds and servers all over the world. And yeah, absolutely. It's, It's okay. So, so. How do you go from the engineering thing to ending up at MIT doing a yeah. very database heavy? Sure. Um, so I um, was in the computer engineering program at the University of Waterloo. I basically absolutely loved university. It was, it was great. I felt like I was finally at school doing stuff that really interested me with people who were super interesting and smart um, and um, interested in similar things, not necessarily the same things as me, but certainly interested in sort of similar-ish things. Um, And so 
Um, yeah, so I actually spent two extra years at the University of Waterloo, mostly because I enjoyed it so much. There's this combined bachelor's, master's program. So I was basically, say, I'll just stay on for I'll another couple years, get my and, master's. And, yeah. yeah, and see what happens. And, and so I did that. Um, at the end of, as that was winding down, basically I had decided that I'm not a huge fan of the academic researchy stuff. At the time I was doing some work on um, uh, computer networking stuff. Um, and I felt like this is just not real enough. All the work there was based on simulations and it's simulations of these wireless networks where the way wireless networks work in the real world varies so much based on physical characteristics. Sure. And I felt this like is more this was theoretical. Just, this was just all it? fake. I mean, the, the stuff that I was doing was not theoretical. It was all just like, um, how, do, how it was wireless mesh networking. So the whole concept at the time was rather than having cell phone based towers or, or Wi-Fi base stations, you can just chain all these things together and they'll like, there will know, be an endpoint somewhere that can peer actually appear yeah. and like, and, and have in some ways the, the modern idea of the internet of things web, they want to ultimately move to that kind of thing, even though everything's just connected via Wi-Fi now. Uh, right. And some of those environments might actually use some of these concepts and, and, um, but anyway, that's as a, did in, as did your eventual startup in some ways, right? Was that useful? I mean, wasn't it like location based stuff and all that kind of stuff? Wasn't that? Oh yes. In some true. ways, did that not? I, I almost forgot about that one. That was a short lived. <laughs> that was a short lived. Okay, side okay, adventure. we'll get to that later. All right. So, so, so you're sitting anyway, there. basically somewhat decided that the the I've decided that the academic stuff seems like it's really fake and it's I just don't really see the point. Um, so I. Uh, was graduating i uh at the time was dating my now wife uh she is who you met only because you're a computer nerd and went to a computer nerd camp thing in the summertime or something right that's correct that's correct (laughs) um so she's in new york uh wait so she already have her dream job at that point or was it almost yes she had already gotten yes so she 2006 it was 2005 when she started okay so this is 2006 so 2006 i'm finishing it at waterloo um she has her dream job she's a dancer for the paul taylor dance company here in new york and um so i'm like great i need to i need to end up in new york and so i'm applying for basically software engineering jobs in new york and i um managed to get a job at google so i moved here to new york in may of 2006 to come work at google because of your wife in some ways, basically because of my wife. Yeah. Plus, I, d- I would Google never, not a bad job to have had. Oh man. No, that's a great job to have right. had, but I would never have ended up in New York. Wait, wait was if it, it wasn't for her? It, it was the, was the, uh, uh, application process at Google as arcane as they make it out to be for you. You know, all the crazy, we're going to give you some impossible question and we're going to, it's a Kobayashi Maru. You know what I mean? Like that's the way some people talk about these companies. Right? It was definitely challenging. The, the, the part that was for me the most stressful that I have a really distinct memory of is like I had applied for this job. And at the time in 2006, New York's software industry was not very well developed. It was more or less you go work for some bank or some hedge fund or some finance company that, that hires lots of software engineers, or you work for some small unknown company that basically didn't exist. Um, And uh, Google had, notably was like, no, we have an office in New York and it's actually our second largest office um, after Mountain View. And so I was basically like, I was like, I really would like to go work there. This seems great. 
Um, I was also looking into actually working remotely for a couple of other companies. Um, so I would be living in New York, but working remotely for some, for, for them somewhere else. Um, so I was most stressed out about the fact that I had applied for this job and hadn't heard anything. And I was like, crap, I would really like to work there. And I haven't heard anything. It took weeks or months even before I even got a phone screen and though, and then I got a phone screen and then it still took weeks or months um, to find out if I like was going to get an onsite interview. And then I had the onsite interview and it was challenging, but, um, technically challenging or just, uh, personally challenging. Yeah. You know technically I mean? challenging. Okay. Like, like I, re- I they don't remember. You. Yeah, absolutely. I don't remember what they on the spot asked. or more like when you come in next week, bring us an answer to this problem. Oh no. On the spot. So it was, okay. it was very, a very like, let's call it what is a traditional software engineering interview. Basically you'll come in and talk to, uh, let's say somewhere between three to six people, probably for 45 minutes to an hour each. And they'll probably, you know, have some fluffy questions at the beginning. And then they're going to ask you some sort of a technical question. Like it's like a you know, PhD thing. It is kind of, it is basically like, it is very much like a PhD defense. It is very much like an oral exam. They're going to ask you some question that, you know, is designed to figure out like, can this person program? Are they smart? Yeah. Um, you do know. they get what we're talking about and can they solve problems? Yeah, exactly. That's the goal. And okay. And did you feel like you did well at your Google interview? I felt like I did well at parts of it. I definitely did not so well at a couple of parts of it. Um, but like new as you walked out there, you're like, shoot, I should have, Oh, I, I totally screwed that up. There was a better answer. Well, I, I remember, I don't even remember what this person asked me. There was definitely one person who asked me sort of a much more theoretical mathematical type of a question, which is not exactly my strong suit. And so that was definitely the one interview that I was had in that one where I was like, Ooh, I don't know if I did okay in that one. I think I felt relatively good about the other ones. Okay. Um, in fact, I think it's funny, uh, small world situation, you know, the New York office in, at Google at that time was, I think probably, I don't know, a hundred, maybe 200 software engineers. And it's funny because I don't remember how many people I talked to, but there's it was at least two people who interviewed me who I'm like still in touch with today. Um, neither of them work at Google now, but you know, I, you know, they're both still acquaintances of mine that I'm, that I, you know, see every now and then. And what Just, kind of work did you do there for a couple of years? Yeah. So I worked at Google for a year and a half in New York. Um, I worked on the query spell corrector was the component. Basic the, the, when did you, go, you mean exactly. So you type something into Google. And it says, originally it said, did you mean this other thing? And the, one of those small changes that happens that, that blew me away when I saw it happen because, um, I had been on the team that worked on this was at some point they changed it. And at this point, when you type in a search query, it will give you the spell corrected results and say, did you mean to type this other thing yeah, they, the way they you actually, it. well, cause it, if you look cases. for something that, yeah, it almost says, oh, the thing they typed in has 3,200 results. This thing that is very similar as 32 million results, they probably meant the other thing. Right. You have to be careful about that because sometimes you actually are looking for the right. weird and esoteric so thing. And so there's the yeah, link. Yeah. Like, yeah. But the reason right. that that was interesting is because at the time I was working on this team, there it was just too expensive computationally to do that before you go search the web index and also importantly, before you go find... Uh, actually, no, that's not true. We, the the ad matching happened after spelling. It was really the web search was too slow and too expensive. You couldn't delay it at all. Whereas now these things are just fast enough and cheap enough that they're like, oh yeah, we'll just do the spell the spell lookup first, then we'll search um, the web index. And for I, it, okay, I'm going to ask you a, a quasi technical question because I've always wanted to know this. Does Google still at the bottom of the page 
say, you know, we pulled this query and 0.0003. I bet it's still there. I don't know. You I know what I'm talking about, I, though. I, it's, it's almost certainly there. Okay. Let's just assume for the moment that it is still there. Sure. How does, from a database point of view, how does Google do that? Or any of these search engines? How do they have some sort of crazy cache that can pull this stuff up? Because obviously he's not doing a search search. There's, there's probably some hierarchy of popular stuff that's cached higher up. And you, you get what I mean. Yep. Like you're nodding yep. your head, but you understand, right? Yep. So but it's so fast, Evan. You yeah. know what I mean? It's like unbelievably fast. So the part that, um, and again, hardware has continued to get more, have more right. and more right. uh, capability over the years. But uh, in 2006, the part that blew me away. And the answer to that question is they keep the entire search index in memory. They have enough computers and enough machines that all the data is not stored on disk. It's not even stored on flash. It's just stored in RAM. And so when How you have a query, I don't remember. You'd have to go, I mean, it's terrible. go look it up. It was at the time that I was there, it was somewhere in the hundreds to thousands of computers required to, to load just this to thing. hold them. So it just has to figure out which computer to go to, to look at that chunk of the index. Usually all of them. Oh, so, interesting. Okay. uh, it depends on how it's, it's, it's some combination of, we, you know, split this up into, you know, a thousand slices and each computer right. has one of the slices. So you just have to send the query to all thousand of them. Yeah. And also some combination of the opposite which, of the, the sort of the other approach, which is this query mentions this thing. I know it goes to this one slice. And so I'm yeah. gonna, almost like routing really data on a shard, but yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So, so, and so that's the way they're so doing it. Really just by keeping answer. everything Lots in of RAM, machines. Lots of machines. Just, and they just never go and, to disk. And right. Exactly. That's, that's e- the short Even for answer. crazy esoteric stuff, it's st- all of that still in memory? Or is there a, is there a level at which it goes, okay, this is beyond there's hierarchies the 50 of these. million things that people usually you got search. It. There's hierarchies of these things. And, okay. so, and so one of the other cheating techniques to a certain extent is, for the most part, people only care about that first 10, those first 10 results on that first yeah. search page. So if you do a search and you go and you look up some results in one of these slices, you know, this one thousandth of the total web or one ten thousandth of the total web, and you get more than 10 results, stop looking. Or, well, you, you need to find the best one. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But I just got to give you page to, one. You don't need to return all the rest of them. And so, yes, there is some amount of, great, we need to put the best results in this location where we'll search first. Yeah. And then if we don't find enough results in that location, then we'll go to the, like, more expensive thing that's on cheaper storage or has less of it or whatever. I mean, just as a general computer engineering thing, concept obviously back in the day software required optimization because of the speed of hardware and it's still true today that it still does absolutely but to a lesser extent but now optimization is this iterative thing where if we can save one tenth of one tenth of one second on this five percent of searches that will save us four billion dollars a year you know what I mean? Like it, it feels like this uh, feedback loop, right? Where they just keep finding the rough edges and, and sanding them down. So uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's two, I have two answers to this statement. One is um, optimization depends on your scale. Sure. So for somebody like Google going and getting something that's a 0.1% improvement probably actually translates into lots of dollars and is worth somebody's time. Yeah. Cause there's four quadrillion searches done and they have 40,000 employees and like, but they if you're have doing 50,000 transactions of a year, whatever it is looking for that, it's not worth it. Correct. Cause you're saving six seconds over. A exactly. Year. And, and, yeah. and if you're, if you're small, that that's not big enough. You need something that's bigger. Uh, so, so some of those things that are appropriate at one level may not be appropriate at another level. Of course. The, um, 
I don't remember what the second part was now. <laughs> uh, stumped you. Something about optimization. Oh, the second one was, um, I think, a general as a general software engineering principle is is absolutely iterative development at, at all levels. So you start with some real primitive, simple prototype thing that just barely works, and then you refine it. You add more yeah. to it. You make it go faster. You change features. You do that. Is, is that fundamental. Always, is that still the major accepted way of doing it versus let's plan out something that's a little more complex. Yeah. And because sometimes you can engineer yourself into a corner. Yes. If you don't have the correct yeah. parameters for that initial thing, that's right. You could build a really bad foundation for a house. That's right. So, so you need a balance, but I'm replacing a foundation as Facebook had to do when they switched everything from JavaScript or whatever. They wrote a compiler, right? They were compiling JavaScript into a, into uh, a compiled code. In their case, it's PHP. But, or PHP, but that, yeah. that, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, you need a balance. Yeah. Although I think that software engineering uh, has actually gone more towards the extreme iterative approach over, over time. That is, there's been a, a stronger encouragement to get something up uh, and going, get something up and running, yep. get that working, keep it working and build on it iteratively. In fact, I think that's one of the big reasons that um, software as a service stuff. So, you know, whether it's web applications or 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 mobile apps or whatever, but basically software that is is um, being continually developed and, and, and provided as a service as opposed to like a package software that you that you right. buy um, is become so popular is because it's actually a more effective way to build software. It's yeah. cheaper and better to, as soon as you have a new feature that might be helpful to somebody, give that feature to them <coughs> as opposed to, as opposed to having to wait six months or a year and the for version 6.3 or whatever it is. Right. And the other big reason that that's actually very useful is that you get faster feedback. So sure. I give it to somebody tomorrow and they say, Oh, actually this isn't quite what I meant. Or, Oh, have you thought about doing it this way? And you'd be like, Oh crap. Yeah. That's right, right, way right, better. Right. And Great, I, we'll fix it. And it we'll also it. feels like in some ways, hardware as a service in the sense of, you know, AWS and Google services, sure, and cloud stuff, computing that allowed point. you to, I mean, you can mess around. I let's spin up five servers after yeah. we finish this podcast and, and run some stuff. And if, Oh, we now, if you need 500 of them, you flip a switch and now you have 500 of them Right, absolutely. where before just transitioning that stuff from size to size, I mean, just scaling has changed months. completely. Yep. Yeah. And so many of those tools probably are sort of underlying all of it, right? Where absolutely. load balancing and scaling is a known problem. Absolutely. As known solutions. Right. Yeah. So that's, and all these things have allowed sort of this, this, this push to, let's say shorter iterative development as opposed yeah. to the planning. That said, there are still times and places that you need to sort of be careful and do some planning and do some. So uh, the part that I find really interesting about software engineering in general is, is the trade-offs about these sorts of things. When should you sit down and really think hard about something and, and try to make sure you're building it the right way the first time, or sometimes it's building it the right way the second time uh, versus just like, screw it. All we need is this thing. Let's just hack something together. Let's get it out there. <laughs> And doesn't we'll matter if figure it's good. It out. It's yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, I, and I think the, the right answer as with most things in life is you actually kind of need a bit of both and you need to do both of those things. Uh, so, so you, why, why did you decide to go to grad or to get your ah, right. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> so I'm at Google in New York. Uh, oh, I forgot about the other part of the story. So um, I'm applying to jobs at, at, uh, in New York. Um, at the same time, I'm finishing up my master's degree. And I don't know if it was a professor who convinced me of this or one of my personal life philosophies has always been um, like uh, keep all your options open. Yeah. 
um, at least if it doesn't cost you anything, like if it has very little cost to you. So one of the things that I was thinking about or somebody encouraged me is like, maybe you should like apply for this Canadian PhD scholarship. It's called NSERC. Um, and, uh, you know, just think about maybe doing a PhD. And I was like, yeah, okay, fine. Waterloo was basically like, we'll accept you into the PhD program, but you know, you can get this scholarship. I was like, okay, fine. I'll apply for this PhD scholarship. And like, I might as well apply to like my top choice school. I don't really want to do this and I don't really expect to get in, but like, I've always kind of, you know, as most people do been like, wow, MIT would really be a great place to go. I'll apply to the PhD program at MIT. And, um, do you have to explain to them what you want to study? I'm trying to remember now. I think, I mean, you have to say, I want to go be in the computer science program. Yeah. I think you have to write some research statement. So you have to write like some one paragraph thing about why do you want to go to MIT? And so some of that does say something or other about, I don't know what the heck I said. I don't I don't really remember what the heck I said. So, um, so you have to write some research statements and, but that's about all I and it, I mean, I, as, as good of a school as Waterloo is for your PhD, is having MIT on your resume even more of a thing in American? Yeah, schools? absolutely. And, and again, Waterloo may have changed a lot since I was there, but I think um, my opinion as somebody who, as a, an outsider is, I think I am even more impressed now at the quality of the university of Waterloo's undergraduate program, at least in, in my area of expertise in the computer science, the, the, the computer engineering, the software engineering programs there are incredibly strong for a university in a country that has the population of California. Um, so they're doing something magically right there. Right. The graduate program is not super strong. Okay. So if you consider what are the world's best research universities for computer science waterloo would not be yeah waterloo would not be in the top 20 yeah um so so you kind of got what you should get out of waterloo and it's time if you want to be in the top level you need to go to mit or stanford don't get me wrong waterloo is still in my opinion a very good school and people who are in the phd program there are absolutely brilliant there are many people there doing excellent excellent work um i know the database people there um I know you're not well. ripping on your school. I'm just saying that like, but, it's a different world. Uh, yeah. And, um, and I also think in general for people's career advice and stuff, I think having some different experiences is actually useful. And sure. So yeah. Stay in the same I'm, school for 12 years or whatever it is. Probably when I'm giving move. people advice about PhD programs, I'm, I always say you should go apply to send, go to some other school because even yeah. just like, I don't know, even just, uh, how they organize classes is differently. Sure. Just seeing some of those things is, is good. So, yeah. Um, so anyway, on my way out uh, or on my way at wa- wrapping up my master's degree, I decide I'm going to apply to the PhD program at MIT. Don't really expect to get it. Um, and I do get accepted. And uh, MIT, as many of the American like, man, schools now I got to come up with something I want to study. <laughs> well, they have this they have this PhD visit day. So they'll invite all the people who are going to like come there. They give you a small amount of money to try and get there. Like, I don't know, $500 or something maybe to try and travel there. Um, I have some friends in Boston. So I'm like, great, I'm going to go to Boston for this day go do the visit day thing. Have you been friend. to Boston at all? Yeah. So I, um, I met my, my now wife in Boston. Oh, that was in Boston. Um, yeah. So I okay. did two internships for IBM there. So I'd spent about eight months or so okay. living in all the, right. living in the city. Um, so anyway, so I, I go to this PhD visit day and I'm like, Oh, this is, I don't know. Maybe I should think about this. Um, but then I get the job offer at Google and I decide MIT will allow you to defer acceptance from September until January. So you can defer for like the one semester. Right, so I'm like, five, well, I got five months to think I'm gonna about this. I'm going to defer this. this. I'm going to go to Google. Keep your options open. Keeping my options open. 
after I met Google for a bit, uh, I have to let MIT know in, let's say, September or October, like, are you coming? And I'm like, I don't think I am. I'm not going to do this. Or, or rather, what I tried to say is like, can I, can I defer until next year? And they're basically like, no, you can reapply. We don't make any guarantees that we'll accept you again, but we don't do deferrals. Yeah, because at that point, you know, your relationship with your now wife is, is heating up. You're making actual money at Google. And it's like, it's hard to say, oh, I'm going to go back. And you, if you never went back, you probably would have had a fine career as a software engineer oh, yeah. without your PhD. No, absolutely. Absolutely. That was definitely part of my debate. Uh, so in particular for me, this is my first job out of college and, and yeah. going from the, even just, I had, I had a lot of internships. The university of Waterloo has this co-op program. So they sort of alternated four months of school with four months of work. So I had had a bunch of internships at a bunch of places. So I had some experience with the real world, but having a real full-time job is, is still different than an internship. You do sort of realish work as an intern, but you still don't have quite the full responsibilities and sort of the see the long-term evolution of projects that last for more than sure. three months. And not as much responsibility. And not probably. as much responsibility. So, so I, it was like drunk, drinking from the fire hose for me. This is like my first job out of college. It was really exciting and learning a lot. So I was like, no, I'm not, gonna, cool. I'm not ready. I'm not ready to go back. And so I decided I would turn them down and I did decide to reapply. Um, again, move, well, yeah, this is again, <laughs> sort of hedging my bets. Although I guess it was later that it was, would have been in the spring or something. I don't remember exactly the timing. The reapplying would have been a bit later and I got reaccepted. And at that point I basically, my thinking was no regrets. Try to live life. So you don't have regrets. If I go to MIT now, if I leave Google and go to MIT and I don't like it, I can always drop out. Yep. If I don't go, I'm going to be sitting there when I'm 40 and be like, what was my life have been like if I had gone to MIT? Yep. And I might be sort of regretting the fact that I never took this chance. And so I decided that basically uh, the cost of me going. I was going to say, was money period, Because it, how is schools work in, in Canada? How much does it cost you to go to college up there? Is that. Is that paid for up there? I don't know. It's not, it's not completely paid for, but it's way heavily, cheaper than American schools. Very much so. Uh, it's heavily government subsidized. Any school, any school you go to in Canada is going to cost something like what uh, I guess an in-state tuition might cost at a state school here. So, yeah. so how does the um, PhD program at MIT work? Do you end up getting lots of you get, grants and scholarships? You get, you get paid basically to okay, go to school. Okay. So uh, you, at, at a science program in the PhD science program in the United States, I would hope that you have a stipend that will actually right. pay you to go to school. So you don't get to paid for well. Free. Yes. In fact, you letters get paid after to go your to name from MIT and your, you know, yeah. But you got to basically move to. Now, when I met you, you were in Boston doing this. So did you? Meet oh, a, that's right. Did you meet yes. a professor up there who was just like, you know, databases are really cool. Um, like, how did you fall into that specific? So angle? the part that I was always really interested in has been um, maybe this goes back all the way to these modems and these BBSs. It's been really having computers communicate and having software communicate. Um, and so that was sort of the, the, I was doing networking work for my master's degree at the university of Waterloo. That's been the stuff that I, the sort of the software stuff that I'd always been really interested in. And so the, and, and at Google, one of the things that, that Google was really an innovator in back when they got started was building large scale internet services out of tons of cheap computers versus the alternative approach that was that was popular for a while was well, we're just going to buy a small number of extremely large computers that are going to be extremely well tended and extremely reliable and we'll just run 
you know, one mo- massive application on this one massive computer. Right. Um, and so having been working at Google and seeing the way that they built software running on these, these fleets of small computers, which at this point has become sort of the dominant server side computing stuff. It wasn't then. Felt like it was not at the time. Um, it was getting there, though. It was definitely getting there. It was clear that, the, I think at the time I was at Google, it was very clear that this was going to be the future. And so to me, it had felt like I had glimpsed how software should be built. Yeah. And the work that needed to happen was how do we, how do we bring this to the rest of the world? And so I kind of felt like uh, that was kind of my initial research thesis going into MIT. Is I was like, Google's doing something right. We need to make this stuff better so that other people can build it. So I was really interested in what's called distributed systems, which is basically how do you build useful software by connecting a bunch of different computers together. Okay. Um, and I actually sort with, of got... With, with each of those computers running different chunks of the software or all of them running the same software and having the, the load distributed? You do, you do both of those things. Some okay. combination of those two things, okay. more or less. Uh, and so I, I would have said I'm not actually a database person. I'm, I'm actually really into this distributed system stuff. And so that was... Um, that was my initial research interest, uh, research interest. And so my, uh, I sort of accidentally got into databases. Uh, my initial advisor is, was a woman whose name is Barbara Liskov. Um, uh, she has the credit of, I think there's some dispute of whether it's her or someone else, but I think she has the credit for being the first female PhD in computer science. She's been a professor at MIT. She's won super smart, uh, super smart. She's won the sort of, uh, uh, the, um, Anyway, she's, uh, she's, she's a fascinating person. So she was my initial advisor, and I was working with her. And while I was there, I read this paper that was done by the database group that was basically a position paper about um, a way to build really fast databases by throwing away a lot of the existing stuff. And they had some description in there for like, oh, the way that we're going to... Um, the way that we're going to uh, save data, we're going to have this transaction that's going to run to make your data safe. And here's how it's going to work across these multiple computers. And I remember I re- read it and I was like, this doesn't sound right to me. This doesn't sound like this is, can possibly work. Like their proposal was wrong. Yeah. And I like... Like physically was, impossible or just the, the solution they were suggesting was not the right solution? I should go back and read the original position paper carefully before I say... The position paper was for your vague. recollection. The, the position paper was vague enough okay. that what they were describing could maybe plausibly work if you add a bunch of additional stuff to it. Right. But right. as described, so either too vague uh, or you misunderstood. Would but either way, work. as a- described, would not work. Okay. Um, so I remember I went to the professor who was involved in this project, and I was basically like. I don't understand how this possibly works. Can you explain this to me or who should I talk to about this? Because I'm really curious. This is the, this is exactly the kind of stuff that I'm really interested in. And he was like, Oh, well, this is just kind of a position paper. We're actually just starting all the work on this. If you want to work on this, like we would love some help. Welcome aboard. And I was basically like, Oh yeah, I'm super interested in this. And so, um, I had some discussion with, uh, with Barbara Liskov at some point about, oh, I'm really interested in this. Is this something that is okay or whatever? And it's definitely something that has been in her research area as well. And so I think she said, I don't remember exactly what she said. I think she said yes. And then I remember it was the end of the second semester. Summer is almost about to start. And at some point she comes over and says, hey, uh, so Sam Madden and I have had a discussion. And because you're going to be working on this like research project over the summer, we've decided it would be better if he funds you. Because Does that he, change things? Because he has funds. I, 
I didn't quite understand at the time, but I think the answer was, yes, he would become my advisor. Um, it's basically what happened. And did you feel like you were missing? I mean, I don't know who this other guy is. So, I mean, did you, did that feel like a little bit of a, wait a minute, the, the person who's my it, mentor doesn't want me. It was kind of a bit funny. I, I was actually okay with it. I think I didn't also realize when she first came and told this to me that that was what, and I don't know if she really knew or that was really the original intention, but right. like, uh, at first I was just like, okay, great funding. I don't care where the funding comes from. Uh, that's fine. And a, bit, a little while later I realized, I was like, oh, I see. Sam's really my advisor now. Okay. And we, I think we made it official by the fall or something like this. And, and, and Sam um, knew as much or more about this specific angle that you were, were working. I think he did not actually. I think Barbara definitely knows more than probably still does knows more than he does for about this sort of stuff. But he was sort of running this research project that, that, it had some interesting stuff that I thought was interesting. And so, yeah, basically he ended up being my advisor instead of Barbara Liskov, um, which I think um, in retrospect worked out really, really well for me. So I'm really sort of thankful that this happened. I think the thing that was ideal about it is I kind of fell into a research project that I was really interested in. Um, I think one of the things that takes lots of people doing a PhD at least in computer science, I don't know about other fields, but takes them a long time is that they kind of meander around. They kind of work on a bunch of different things. Whereas I was lucky enough to find something initially that I was like, oh, this is a really interesting project. I'm really interested in spending a bunch of time on this. And I really focused on it. And which is maybe why you got to do it in four instead of six. Right. The other part was after about two years, I think I was kind of looking at this and being like, you know, I, the academic world is not really for me. Having a PhD in computer science, really its key qualification is it qualifies you to be a researcher, an academic researcher, basically to have a, be a professor somewhere, or maybe to have a research scientist jobs right. of which they are. But I'm already a couple years in, so I might as well finish, but I should finish as quickly as so, possible. So, right. So I had a conversation with my advisor at that point and was like, I'm not sure I really want to be an academic. Um, and uh, he was like, are you sure? I think that you could probably do it. You'd probably have to spend a few more I've years at MIT. Classes. You did a good idea. Oh yeah, that's good right. Job, I forgot you came, you came to one of my lectures. I did. Um, so, so, so wait, what was, what was the title of your dissertation? Oh man. Uh, this I'll, goes to show this I'll goes to link to, this in the show notes. Go. Yeah. This goes <laughs> to show, this goes to show how important it turns out that this piece of writing has been for my life that I do not even remember what it is called. Um, has it been has it been uh, referenced by other people a lot? My thesis has not. I think that there is a couple of the papers. So, academic computer science at this point has gotten to the point where um, there there was a point in time that people's theses were very important. Yeah. At this point, it is it happens that people's theses become accepted references or become widely read because they did something relatively important or perhaps just described the existing body of work really well. Sure. Uh, but like it's pretty rare. The original description of token ring networking or whatever. Well, normally the original work at this point gets published as a, as a research paper in some sort of uh, conference yeah. um, much before the thesis ever happens. So that tends to be the, ref the things that get referenced. Um, I published, what, two, four papers or something during my PhD. Right. Frankly, none of them are really worth reading. A couple of them have been cited a few times. Um, so, yeah. And again, nothing that anybody ever brings up when you go interview for a job. Mm. Never. Um, no. I but do, the fact that you do have letters after your name and they're from MIT gives you some level of cachet. It no? probably gets me the interview. I think it probably okay. gets me the interview. They're probably going to see this and be like, wait, this person has a PhD from MIT. I should probably interview them. How many people graduate or uh, get PhDs from MIT in computer science each year? Do you know, just general. I'm going to guess. It's actually a fairly large program. I'm going to guess. Hundreds? 
No, not that many. But uh, 50? Okay. I'd have to go look it up. I'm going to guess it's something like that. No, at, th- at that point when you're doing all this stuff and you're doing the research, obviously your undergrad and your, and your master's were probably more hands-on writing in languages kind of, per, kind of stuff than you were doing at your PhD, or is that incorrect? Um, my work was very, uh, let's call it applied research. Okay. So it involved writing a research prototype. So I wrote and actually a, testing speeds of transactions. Exactly. So okay. I arguably, I think I probably wrote I, more probably, code in my PhD than I do today because it was basically a one person project where I was like, great, I have to sit down and, and write a whole lot of crap to be able to run some experiments to write a paper about it. it okay. In, a friend of mine used to work for, oh hell, who did he work for? He was down in Austin. He was working for some semiconductor company. I forget what it is. Which one he was working Sure, there's a number of them there. He wasn't at AMD, but he was somewhere down there. Anyway, but he built, he didn't build the chips, but he built the hardware that tested the chips. Oh, sure. Yeah, So absolutely. My question to you is, how much of the code that you were writing was basically test procedures and software to test the stuff that you were actually building? And how much of that is some sort of industry standard? Because how do you compare your transactional times to somebody else's if you're both using different measurement techniques? So for a PhD, uh, uh, software written by PhD students is notoriously bad quality. And so um, I think the sort of, let's call it percentage of test stuff, depending on how you look at it, was either very low, like let's say, I don't know, 10%. Um, or one other way to look at it is actually like it was extremely high because the only purpose of this piece of software was like to run some benchmark yeah. and then throw it all in away. In some ways, the original, the software, so all of it was just one big test. All of it, yeah. it was just all this test yeah. to run. To but you understand my distinction though. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so very, very low, particularly compared to industrial software, like say what I would do at my day job now. Interesting. Okay. All right. So it, in, in your years of stuff, g- give me a list. What kind of languages do you feel comfortable writing in? Uh, a total list? Not a total list, but like, you know, when you were starting out, obviously at the time you were starting out, C++ was probably yeah, where you start. Exactly. So I, I, I spent um, most of my time at Google writing C++, some Python, some Java. Yeah. I spent most of my time at MIT writing C++ and Java. Um, post MIT, uh, I spent a bunch of time writing Java and JavaScript. Uh, I worked at Twitter for two years. I wrote mostly Scala while I was there. What's Scala? Um, it's a um, it ha- it's a programming language that came from an academic research group, um, and it is let's say compatible with Java. So it runs on the Java virtual machines. So that means if you have existing sure. Java code, Java libraries, they will interoperate with Scala. Scala, you can call Scala libraries from Java libraries. So that's actually really useful. Yeah. Um, and Scala was mostly designed to be, um, to try to bring functional programming and advanced type systems to Java. And it was sort of an experiment in that it's, so it, it, had a period, I would argue it had a period where it was seemed like it would be a potentially the next a big super programming set of language. Java. It's very much a superset of Java. It has lots and lots of features. It's got all sorts of things. Um, and so it became really popular with some of the startups that started around the same time that Twitter did. Um, Foursquare here in New York is one that notably has a heck of a lot of Scala. There's a bunch of others in that time frame that, that similarly. Um, how, how's, how's your, how are your Perl skills? 
I did, in fact, write a heck of a lot of Pearl when I was in university, and I am very thankful to have not had to touch it in many, many years. People who swear by Pearl, though, swear by Pearl. As with most of these things. Any it's, sort it's, of sort of string stuff, right? Pearl people are like, I can do what right. you takes you 43 lines in like six characters. Yeah. You know. The, um, I think like, like any tool, people get really attached to their thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I think you, about, do you see them as tools. Well, I you see you, it's interesting because when you were starting out doing the C plus plus and even Java and stuff, well, C plus plus certainly that, you know, Oh, these kids nowadays, they don't have to declare their variable types and they, the garbage collection, this and whatever yeah. that, like they had it so easy. They weren't allowed to, yep. you know, uh, mess up their own memory subsystems and stuff and everything's managed for them and they're lazy. Is there, is there that kind of stuff for I, people your age? I think there is still some, let's say, I think there is still some stigma in the industry related to some of the choices of tools that you make. Like um, the one that comes to mind immediately is I think, unfortunately, many people look at uh, software engineers who work at particularly more of the user interface level of stuff yep. as maybe not doing real software engineering. Yeah, you're which, not programming, you're scripting at best or even just declarative sort of right, which, stuff. Which I think is a shame because I think writing extremely good user interfaces has a unique blend of engineering and design that even is extremely hard. Or, or, or JavaScript or whatever else. Sure, CSS. sure. I basically yeah. do not know how to do a good job of it. So I'm, I am in awe of people who can. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's definitely some of that. Interesting. Sorry. Sorry. I, did, I wanted yeah. to, it's, it, it's the, the, the sort of um, philosophy of languages over time has changed a lot or, or, or has ex, maybe has expanded because there has been such a, Hardware power has exploded, so things don't need to be as lean as inefficient. Right. They could be a little bit more bloated, which allows you to, you know, step one step layer back of right. abstraction so, and stuff. And I th- and I th- and I think this is we are still in the er- the software industry is still in its relatively early days. We're still trying to figure out how exactly should you build software. Well, um, this is definitely something that has changed a lot. As you said, hardware capabilities have grown exponentially. So, you know, we're all carrying these supercomputers around in our pocket of these smartphones that are far more capable than the most expensive computer you could possibly buy 20 or 30 years ago. Right. It blows me away. And so, um, so absolutely part of the, part of that hardware resources has been spent to make it easier or faster to develop software or right. to easier or faster to build applications or, or spent or wasted, perhaps you might say, depending yeah, on your yeah, perspective. Yeah, depends on how you see it. Um, and so that has definitely changed some of these tools. And so, you know, C++ was extremely popular at the time I was in university and it was being replaced by Java at the time that I finished. One of the trade-offs there is you can probably, in many cases, particularly at that era, write a more efficient program if you use C++, you're probably going to spend a little bit more time because there are certain types of errors that are not possible in Java that you will just simply avoid. And that's sort of the trade-off. And and like you were saying earlier, how the idea of basically hack something together, get it running, and then build from there. Oh, yeah, we can just use this library. We can just plug all of these different things into each other nowadays because they all quasi-interoperate. 
oh, we spin up a database and let's grab this library and this will talk to this. Even though you might be only using 5% of that library, the, the smart thing would do eventually is some guy's job or gal's job is going to be to go replace that library with some custom code that's really efficient because that's the bottleneck in some system or whatever it is. And, right. and that, and that, and that can't, that will happen. Right. Yeah. And so, and, and this comes back to what I was saying, what it may depend on your scale. It may, it, yeah. if you have a successful, if you are lucky enough to be working on a successful application that's growing that, yeah. um, that, uh, then suddenly doing that might actually make sense. I, I, I have one more theoretical thing and then we'll get back to your story. Cause I just, I'm fascinated by this. <laughs> People talk whenever they talk about a new language coming out that at a certain point, sort of one of the benchmarks of a new language is actually writing a compiler for that language in that language. Yep. It's sort of a recursive yep. kind of thing. So do you use an older compiler built in C++ oh, to, good question. to, to, to build the compiler that lets you compile the switch? Yes. Thing? Like, I don't understand how that yeah. bootstraps itself. Great. So, um, <laughs> so that's a fascinating question, right? So how do you build these tools when you need tools to build them themselves? And and the answer generally is exactly what you said. You have to use some, some earlier tool yeah. to build it. The um, this does cause some tricky situations, particularly as you said, if you if you're writing the tool to create Java programs, for example, and you're writing that in Java, well, how do you run it if you don't have Java? And the answer is, well, the very first version was not written in Java. The very first version was written in something else. It was written in C. And then they use that to build the Java program. And then, uh, and then if you want to be really careful about this, so you want to maintain the fact that you can build your tools if you have to build them in some new environment, like on a new operating system or on a new machine, sure. you may wish to keep that chain alive. So that is, you keep this old C program around that can compile the first version of Java and then the first version of Java can compile the second version of Java, which then can compile the third version, so on and so forth. And then you can chain up to your modern era. And then for the most part, you then just distribute the like binary output of that. So like I can go download something that will run on my computer and just give me the Java thing. And then, and then that's how I get started. But if I need to, I can always go back in history and, and go through this massive chain of things. I just think about things like, uh, you know, Apple started Swift a few years ago. Yeah. They, they're just right. like, this Objective-C thing is a dead yeah. end. It's been around forever. It's clunky. We need to do better. All right, we'll build a Swift thing. Just the idea of like this weird, almost magical incantation thing that must happen at the point at which Swift sort of bootstraps itself and is compiling a compiler in Swift. Like that must be a really crazy moment. I have never worked on those types of tools and things, but, but yes, I have to imagine that that definitely is one of those milestones that, that certainly would feel like an, uh, an accomplishment. It's like, I remember uh, reading, uh, uh, David Cutler, who I guess was the architect of windows NT. Oh, this is, uh, um, he used to work at digital. Yeah. It, you are, you read the showstoppers. Yep. I just, I actually just read that, which is actually fairly recently. It's very much of its time, of course, very much so. Yeah. But still fascinating. I mean, and they they started dogfooding really early. They were writing Windows NT on early right. builds of Windows right. NT. Yep. It's like if it's not good enough for us to use, it's not going to be good enough That's for right. our users. So That's we're right. starting. And and I think this goes back to you have to build software iteratively. They they knew that for them to build the first version of Windows NT, they really needed to start with something simple. But they needed it to work, and they needed that simple thing to actually do something useful, yeah. and then they could add more stuff to it. Yeah. And so since they were the software developers themselves, they're like, great, the first 
application that we should really target is us being able to build our own software. Yeah. And uh, it has some fun side Kernel benefits. Text editors, of, compilers, like low level stuff. stuff. Right. It has the fun side benefit that you will now feel the pain when it doesn't work. Whereas yep. if it's somebody else telling you about the pain, yeah. you might be a little less motivated to go fix it. Screw you, Evan. Last night's build crashed my thing. What did you change? Right. You know, That's that one thing. thing versus like, oh, crap, I can't use my thing because I broke it myself. That's right, right, right. Yeah. Much more motivating to fix. Okay. All right. So you finish your PhD. All right. Did you realize that, did you know, you you finished your PhD in 2012, was it? Uh, Wait a second. We just figured this out. 2011. Okay. 2011. Which was a pretty interesting time in the entrepreneurial world of computing. Well, I guess the whole last 10 years have been. Uh, or in some ways. I, I, and again, go back to my previous point. I in think the last actually 40 years been, been. the computer industry has had some fascinating stories over the last 40 years. And, uh, and obviously in your world, the not to put too fine, the get rich quick scheme is, Oh, let's start a company <laughs> and hope it gets bought out by somebody. Right? Like that is, or it blows up and becomes this big giant thing. Yeah, and but we're young. I think I think there's lots of stories about people getting successful and doing this. Oh, there's and lots like, of failures too. And and the statistics are, I think this is absolutely not the get rich quick scheme. The the get rich quick scheme. Well, to so go work it, for Google in 2000. Well, that's that would also work. <laughs> but I think the real the real uh, risk adjusted reward, let's say, uh, mechanism is go get a job at the highest paid large company that you can find. Um, and then work there for five to 10 years and, and you will be very comfortable in the software industry these days. Um, going to start a startup is going to get 1% of people very, very rich and it's going to get 99% of people less money than they would get working at but some But it's a siren call. Company. It's tempting. I think the part for me that was interesting is uh, I've always, my I've been fascinated by software in the computer industry. I've been a, you know, reader of things like that computer paper I mentioned with the BBS lists through to this showstoppers book that you mentioned. Like I, I read all sorts of this stuff all the time. I've always wanted to have lots of the, a breadth of experience in the software industry to a certain extent. That's part of the reason that I decided to leave Google and go to MIT is here's an opportunity for me to go see what doing a PhD at what is one of the best institutions in the world is like, um, so similarly, when I was finishing my PhD, I was, I was obviously thinking about like, what's next? And I'd always been curious about like, great, what's life like as a startup? Can we, can I start a startup? Can I, can I create a new company? And here's so, an interesting experience to have at a time when I don't have kids. I don't have this. I don't have that. Like, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so if I was I'm like, going to do it. I might as well sh- give it a shot. Let's now. see if, let's see if we can make this happen. And was it compatriots of yours that, you know, was a VJ and these guys who were just like, Hey man, let's just give this a shot. Yeah, so I think there had been. Did he have experience before that in in starting companies? Well, uh, so I uh, there was actually sort of three. There was actually three various length lived attempts to uh, to start a startup. Actually, so the first thing that happened was a spinoff of my research, sort of much more directly, and I was much less involved in the let's say attempt to start up, create a startup around it. Um, but um, I had been working with. Um, a dear friend of mine and postdoc at the time at the MIT, his name is Carlo Carino. He now works at Microsoft doing database stuff in Seattle. Um, he was involved. My advisor, Sam Madden, was involved. There was another professor. There's probably one or two other people that I'm forgetting. Um, and basically... That's a big thing, though. Like at Stanford and MIT, a lot of it, like spinning off PhDs into companies 
That's that's a thing. A big chunk of it. It's absolutely Draper Labs. And and part of how what happened in this case is that there was um, someone who worked at a venture capital firm at the time who had decided he would get to know some of the professors who had gotten to know my advisor. And so I think at some point they'd been talking about our current research. And he's like, he had basically said something like this. There's something here. There is something hot related to databases in this new cloud computing world. Like who owns the rights in those situations? So MIT is fairly liberal about this. Okay. The inventors own most of the IP. You end up, or maybe I get this wrong. Hang on a second. I have this wrong. MIT owns all the IP, but MIT is uh, well aware that it is in their best interest to allow these sorts of things to happen. But you basically license it from them? Right. The rumor that I've heard is there is a patent on the HDTV decoding something or other, and basically MIT gets something like 10 cents from every single HDTV an HTTP decoder that's sold in the, the long run. It's ever. better for people to take the info and run with it. So they own the IP, but they have a fairly well-established process for how you can go start a startup and license yeah, it yeah. and license it, the technology from MIT effectively. So um, we never got to that stage, at least not with this one. So uh, anyway, this, this, uh, the venture capitalist whose name is Donald Fisher, somebody else that I still stay in touch with, um, had I had a conversation with my advisor and was like, there's something here. If you want to figure this out, I would love to like help bounce some ideas off of you, find some early Were you in the room at this point or did your advisor came to you and I said, was not. So I got involved a little bit later, although I think Sam and Carlo and I had always talked about like, oh, maybe we could start a company around something like this or what should we do? How could you commercialize this? What are other people doing in the database industry? Um, those were some of the common subjects of conversations. Um, but at some point there had been some a bit of a more serious conversation. And there was about a two month period, I think where um, they were spending quite a bit of time trying to figure out, okay, exactly how would this work? What would the product look like? What would it, what would it require? How would we sell it? Who are some early potential customers? And eventually it, that sort of just fell apart and I was not very involved in it. I think part of it was just, 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 uh, did they imagine end end users being customers or other companies being customers? So this is very much a database product. This is enterprise software. So this is you go sell, a database product to some company because they should run their software on it. And, and the same thing as Oracle or, or any of these other people. Oracle or Amazon okay. or... All right, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so that... Fizzled. So that ended up fizzling. Um, to use a nuclear term. Oh, I think the reason... <laughs> I think the reason that I was not very involved in that is I think Sam, my advisor, felt like he had a bit of a... Um, a uh, an ethical duty to not derail his PhD students from their academic pursuits and academic studies. Oh, okay. Interesting. And so I think Carlo, who was a postdoc was more involved because he already has his PhD. He's only going to be at MIT for a year or two. So maybe this is something that would work, but I think he was sort of like, you know, Evan, if you're interested, we can figure out how this works. But like for now, like you should focus on your PhD. Um, it wasn't a, I want a bigger piece of this. So you keep working kid and I'm going to uh, go run. Uh, the no, company. I don't think so. I don't think so. <clears throat> okay. Um, so anyway, so, so that didn't work out year or two goes by and, and I, and I get closer to finishing and I'm thinking about what's next. And I'm thinking about, um, startups again. And one of the things that there was another student who was graduating at around the same time as I was, who, who, um, shared an advisor with me, Sam, Sam and I, um, Arvin and I were both advised by, by Sam and we were graduating around the same time. We were both interested in trying to, maybe if we could commercialize some of the research that we were working on. And so we spent a little bit of time while we were both still finishing our, our PhDs, basically investigating these two ideas and um, his research was 
on how do you figure out where you are inside of a building using the existing sensors that are built into today's smartphones. And um, we eventually decided this seems interesting. It feels like this is advanced technology. That's, so you're talking like GPS and Bluetooth beacons and right. And the and the reason that GPS is not so great is that it comes these you have to satellite, have a satellite sure. signal. Yep, yep. So sure. if you do not cannot see the sky, you generally cannot get a GPS yep. signal, and you do not GPS does not help you to tell you where you are inside the building. So it's using GPS. It's using when you can. That makes your life really easy. Using Wi-Fi signals, it's using the cell phone signals, and it's using the motion sensors on your on your phone. With Wi-Fi signals, is it like the signal strength and triangulating based on signal strength? Yeah, I think it's actually uh, yes, more or less. Um, the challenge is that uh, the way wireless signals propagate, propagate through a building is very chaotic, and so you can't just say, "Oh, my signal strength is." At fifty percent, so I'm at a hundred feet. You go around at, a corner and yeah, it disappears. Was, I mean, the, so you end up having to do this margins map is huge, very much so. And so that was actually one of the one of the challenges is is the technology works, but doesn't necessarily have really great commercial Accuracy. applications, yes. um, particularly as a startup. So okay. the one. The one case that I know you can absolutely see this technology today is if you have Google Maps on your phone and you go into any major airport in the United States, Google Maps will say, do you want to see the map of the airport? And it'll yep. show you where you are inside that airport right now. And that's exactly the same technology. Uh, we actually talked to their team at some point to try and convince them that they should buy us and, and failed. Because um, they were already doing it? They were already doing it and probably had... So they were using... Are they use, they're using Wi-Fi signals for that? Yes. Yeah. Did the, did the... Because for a time there a few years ago... The concept of Bluetooth beacons in malls and all that kind of yeah. stuff was a huge thing, and then it kind of disappeared. Yeah, what? nobody, you haven't heard about that. I haven't heard about that very recently. And I think we the same issue happened is that um, it was technology searching for a problem, yeah. and people thought it might make sense. And I don't think anyone has ever really managed to prove that it makes any sense whatsoever. I think okay. the only the only application that I know of that I think has been fairly successful has been tagging physical devices so that you like expensive equipment in hospitals hospitals would love to know where is the yeah, i don't know where's the portable thing that's on machine. a, on a, on a right. cart or at the very least know when it goes out of the building um asset tagging stuff i think has been but not still not like a massively successful business but yeah okay so that so that one kind of died so so right so arvin and i we uh we, we graduated we actually spent six months i spent six months post-graduation arvin spent longer after six months i was in new york arvin did you was have in outside Boston. money on that Pardon me? Did you have outside money for, for that one? Um, at that time, we did not. At that time, we were basically just going off whatever meager savings that we had. And uh, after about six months, I was basically like, I'm not convinced that we can figure out a real application for this. Uh, Arvind uh, spent a bunch longer working on it. Um, he actually ended up basically... Uh, uh, Amazon, uh, what we call Aqua hired sure. his company so that he would go work for Amazon. And he's, he ended up working there for, uh, did he have any IP years. at that point in terms of like technology and code that actually was useful to Amazon? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Did you own I any think, of that theoretically? Um, I did receive a very, very small check at some point, which when Arvin handed it to me, I was, I can't remember exactly what I said, but You're I said like, something hey, cool. along the lines of like, I, I cannot believe that, I have anything at all. This like this is amazing. I hope you did the accounting right because uh, like yeah, yeah. you you really he Thanks. was I really wasn't the person. Anything great? He, I get a small check. He spent for this. another six or something months. Really like it wouldn't. 
we wouldn't have received that check if he hadn't really, it was really all his work. So, and did you, I, let me, uh, just as a, a side thing here, did, in a situation like that where you and your friend are going to start a thing, because you're friends, when you're starting it out, do you go, listen, anything we build, we're going to play 50-50, let's write something up, you know, and then at the point at which you go, oh, I'm going to move on to something else and he wants to stay with it. Is there a decision of, all right, I still want 20% of this, even though you're moving forward. Like, are those conversations you have or is it still gentlemen's agreements? I think it depends on how serious you are about something. In the case of what we were doing, what Arvin and I were doing, we absolutely had an agreement because okay. it was definitely like, we, if we're both going to spend our full time on this, we are, you know, uh, delaying further job and further employment. This is, there's a real opportunity cost to us doing this. Like, we need to make sure that we do it right. And And I would strongly recommend anybody would do that because you're protecting yourself in a situation like yeah. that. So we've all seen the social network. What happens when you don't get a piece of paper? Right. And even if you have the piece of paper, you may have screwed it up and it may not be good enough, sure. whatever also, but it's, it's certainly going to be a much better starting point than like, well, I thought I said this and I say, I remember you saying this other thing. Yeah, That's I'm a terrible find place. that email. Yeah. I think there's another middle ground of some sort where it's just like, nobody's really taking this very seriously. We're really just playing around and fooling yep. around maybe you don't bother in that case, but otherwise like these days you can go find forms online or something like that. That that's relatively low effort. Just do something like that. You can always revise it later, you have it in a drawer. but, but having it early would is way better than not doing it all. So yeah, uh, there was an agreement and that was part of the reason I received a check is that Arvind was right. Is a very dutiful person and had gone Up, through all the documents young man, and, yes. and had done all this. All right. So, so, so the third one is what? So great. So I had told Arvind, I don't think this is work. I'm, I'm out. And, uh, my friend VJ, who I had met working at Google, yep. uh, he was also trying to figure out what he wanted to do next. And so I had, what was he doing at Google at the time when I, when I was working at Google yeah. or, um, so at the time, VJ worked on a bunch of different things at Google. At the time that I was at Google, we were not on the same team. And I believe he was working on, at the time, there was an, sort of a, an early internal effort around um, accounting for cost uh, to, back to the projects of, of things. And the reason that this matters is when you're running these large applications on thousands of computers, it'd be nice to know like, well, how much does it cost for us to run web search? How much does it cost for us to run Gmail? Uh, is that from appropriate? A, from equipment costs, from a capital cost and power and everything, all, all that. Yeah. The, the Transmission. Goal, the goal is everything, right? Ideally yeah. you should be able to say, you know, Google spent each X search costs us one tenth of one tenth of one cent or whatever. That'd be great to know. Right. Right. And so I think that that was the project he was involved in at the time. It's funny because uh, the last time I spent time with him, because I also yeah. know VJ. Yeah. Um, you know, he had just bought a, a new fancy iMac Pro and he's just like, I don't know why I bought this big machine. I don't even code anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> so at the time though, he was uh, a serious coder or, or was that always sort of a, was he always a business guy first? Um, no, VJ, VJ's career is he started out as a software engineer and uh, he dropped out of the PhD program from Carnegie Mellon to go work at Google, uh, worked at Google for a number of years. I don't remember exactly how many, six, eight, something like right. that. Um, I think at the end of his career at Google, he was an engineering manager and managing a team. And then um, and then he left to go do nothing for, uh, actually, that's not true. Well, maybe I'm getting the order wrong. He left to go do nothing for a bit and then he actually worked at um, a, uh, a couple of places in New York, um, 
sort of startups and because he was at things. Google early enough, they were paying him well enough, and he had lots of stock and blah 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 blah. blah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, 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 but so what you had known him from back in the day, and then you yeah. you finish up this other one, and you guys sit down one night for dinner, and he says, "Hey, by the well, way, I literally, I my recollection is I sent him an email after I had told told Arvin basically." or maybe shortly before or whatever that I was out, I basically sent, told GVJ, I'm like, because we had been talking on and off about what he's up to and stuff. Um, I basically sent him an email and said, I'm, I'm no longer involved in this, in this current venture. I still have a little bit of savings, but not a lot. If we can figure out something that we're both interested in doing in the next month, let's like, let's try, let's try doing some other startup thing. And so I think then, then he was like, okay, great. Let's, Let's go, let's go talk about what we want to do. Um, was that a weird, was that a, was that a sort of Hail, Hail Mary discussion or did you guys have actual stuff in mind even at that stage? I think, um, I think VJ had had a couple of things in mind because he, I think we both had a couple of things in mind actually come to think of it, but uh, because we had been, I had been talking about trying to figure out a startup thing when I finished my PhD for a while, I had right. had some conversations with VJ about that earlier. He was trying to figure out what he wanted to do next. So he had been thinking about some stuff. And so that's the sort of stuff that we had had conversations about. Got it. And my recollection is at the time that I basically had this conversation with him, he had been talking to some of his lawyer friends about a process that's called discovery and how annoying and painful and expensive it is and how backwards the software is that they use for this process. Um, that's the kind of thing where nowadays people that if somebody was going to start doing a piece of software like that now, they would say, oh, we're going to use AI and neural nets to, to do this. I mean, oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Okay. I, in fact, I think even at the time we were doing, we, we spent some time looking into this. I think like, uh, IBM is probably working on basically like this is essentially what they want Watson to do eventually. Sure, exactly. Right? And, okay. And, and people were definitely are probably still using that stuff in their ad, ad, ads for these products today. Yeah, sorry, um, I didn't mean to just derail. No, so um, we don't, don't need to get into the details. We were trying to build a product for lawyers. We actually spent, I don't know, a month, six, uh, we spent a little bit of time trying to understand what would this actually look like. And I think we quickly decided that um, we were not lawyers ourselves. We had zero experience with the legal industry. Us going to create a product for an industry where we where the founding team had zero experience with this particular problem was probably not going to be a we good We either bring on idea. some lawyers or we look at this a different direction. That's exactly right. And so we, um, the thing that we had been interested in at the time was the, this move towards software as a service. Our view was companies should not be buying and running their own software in-house and running it themselves. They should absolutely just be renting software from other people. There's no reason anybody should have their own email server. You really should just pay Google or Microsoft or whoever to run your email and just access all of that through a web browser. Right. Um, and so we were basically like, that's, that seems it's like better that's better for a, security. That's it's better clear, for economics. It's better across. The right. That's a clear, that's our imparted opinion. That's a clear, better way to use software. And that's a huge change in the industry that these companies are going through to go from having to administer and buy their local software to yeah. just renting it from other people. Sort of the software version of moving everything to the, to the hardware cloud, as it were. Yeah, yeah. And so our view was, okay, great. So what else are they going to need? If there's a huge sea change happening of how people spend these enormous budgets, there's going to be some opportunities for some products to, to, to help them with this or do something. So that was the part that we were like, okay, this is something that we definitely believe in this change. Let's go try and figure out what might be happening here. And so we spent some time talking to all of our friends who were involved in 
various small medium businesses about like what cloud software are you using? What stuff are you using locally? Like why? How do you make these choices? What stuff works? I remember stuff you sitting down work? with me talking about that. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We were talking about how do you deal with your files and right. like if yeah. you have to share files with clients ever or yep. things like that about you know photographs and stuff. That was definitely part of our research process. Uh, maybe we should build a product for the like professional market and there's right. lots of freelance professionals out there and there are products aimed at them. Anyway, um, the thing that we got interested in that we thought might be useful is, well, if you're using a bunch of these cloud products, maybe you'll need something to help them work together. We, we were of the opinion that you're not going to just buy 100% Google products. You're probably going to buy Google Gmail from Google and you're going to buy Salesforce from Salesforce Office and you're going to buy who knows what else. Right, right. So how do you make, what, what do you need to make these things work together? And so our initial thing, partly due to our backgrounds, partly because we had just spent some time looking into search stuff related to this legal discovery product was, well, maybe you need a tool to help you just search for all of this and find your information. Where is that document? Was it in a Gmail attachment or was it on this Dropbox folder or was it somewhere else? And so that was actually the first thing thing that we started with was basically we're going to build sort of search. meta searches of, of other services. Yeah. An internal search service, an enterprise search service, search inside your company that's designed for the cloud era. So you're going to be able to attach to all of your cloud software and, and search there. Um, and so you were talking about, you know, 2000, 2011 being an interesting time in the startup ecosystem. I think that that is still true. I think one of the things I think that is somewhat true. The, the part that I think was true for us is that we had very good timing. Um, which is pure chance. We started this company at a time that there was lots of early stage money around for new startups. Yeah. There was lots of people looking people were to coming back from the big crash in 2008 and they were looking for smaller things to dump. Here, I'll give you a hundred thousand dollars. Start exactly. messing around. And so we uh, had known some people who had gone through this process. We got some introductions to people. And so we, that was the idea that is we, that, how, that, is we that how that works? Is it, is it introductions? Is it, Oh, you know, uh, Tony Giacconi told us to call you and Motorola. He's vouching for us. Basically, 100%, us a 100% words of mouth. 100% word of mouth. Interesting. Um, yeah, it's very much it's very much a word of mouth situation. Is that still all in Silicon Valley for that kind of stuff? Or are there Silicon Valley is by stuff? far the epicenter of it and has, you know, I don't know what. It, Although it's so five times as much run an office out there that it's. I mean, we're in New York City. I don't think it's any cheaper. But uh, there is there is more of this outside of Silicon Valley now than there used to be. So in our case, um, although the other part that happens is that so much of this uh, remote communication and things like that happen. But so for us, the thing that happened was we we so, so we did the very traditional venture capital thing. We talked to angel investors, so basically people who are wealthy individuals who are interested in investing in startups. For the most part, these are people who have been successful at their own technology startups and are now sort of like paying it forward by investing in, in other entrepreneurs yeah. um, and sort of want to stay connected to that world by, by doing that. And angel, angel investors, like the really early angel investors, do they, ex, do they expect a larger piece of the action than people later on because they're taking such a risk? Well, the, the, um, there's nothing to show for it. If you're at a, your second or third round, yeah. they have some quantification of what it is, what it's worth, who's working, how, what your burn rate is, all this kind of stuff. That's right. right. So the general thought is the earlier involved, it's higher risk. Yep. And the later you're involved, it should be have lower risk. The hope is that high risk at the early means you might be able to get very large returns, but yes. So when you're investing early, if you put in, 
let's say a hundred thousand dollars. I want 5% of the company. You should get, you should get some percent. Whereas in a couple of years, that hundred thousand dollars is going to get you 0.5% of the company or something to to make some numbers. Did you like that part of it? I thought that it, I mean, it was a fantastic learning experience. I kind of a roller coaster though. It's um, definitely. And I am not necessarily a, I am, I am personally an introvert. I am not an extrovert. So to me, I find talking to people is, uh, I'm not like an extreme introvert, but talking to people in generally is kind of tiring. I don't really want to do it all, all day long, every day. And that process of raising money is very much go talk to everybody that you can, set up meetings, yeah. go go have these meetings, Schmoozing. go pitch it. Oh, we should double check convince, with Joe. Or and, whatever. Yeah. and it's a sales job. You yeah. have to convince them that what you're that that your company is the product that they're buying is a product yeah. that they should buy. And so I wasn't a huge fan of that. Certainly, getting people who were interested in investing yeah. was very very exciting. And then getting people who were said, "Yeah, I'm 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 willing to invest. Sure, sign me up." That was incredible. And, and were uh, you the guy, if there was somebody in the room who came in and he was the engineer, the CIO of something, and they were just like, I want you to explain the technology to me. Was that a more comfortable position for you than the more sort of uh, personable kind of angle? Yes, absolutely. I am. Yeah. I am. That is talking to my strength. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. So, so you get a little bit of money, you grow a little bit, you get a little bit more money. Yeah. So, so we raised money from some angel investors. So some of these individuals or, or rather we got verbal commitments that some angel investors would be willing to invest. We then talked to venture capitalists who were interested in investing in small early stage companies like ours. Uh, we can make a long story short. Uh, we ended up taking money, getting an investment from Google ventures and, um, Matrix, which is at a VC firm, another another Did large. The fact VC that firm. both of you had worked at Google and knew people there have any. Absolutely, okay. yeah, absolutely. I, this goes back. So they to the, see it as oh, VJ's a known thing. Evans a known thing. It's yeah, at some level him so. more than you because he was there a lot longer. That's correct. Yeah, and, but, in, and in particular, he knew. Yes, it, this goes back to those personal connections and knowing people. So he knew someone who was working at Google ventures now that was somebody that he had known fairly well. And so I think absolutely it was the kind of thing where they came in and he was basically probably, and it was mostly for VJ. I'm sure it was like, yeah, I think this, you know, VJ VJ knows what he's doing. Um, You know, he was, he was uh, from the beginning. Did you imagine it as no, we're going to build a a company and we're actually going to sell the customers. Or was it always like, let's build up this thing. That's a really cool tool that somebody else (laughs) is going to want to run in and, and scoop up from us. I think, um, I think we were or a percentage of, we were, yeah. we were in it for the adventure, right? We were in it for the, the experience. Who knows where it will lead. I think the, the, the hope and the dream was that sure. We I'm not going to deny Google it. Right? Gave us part money. Of, Maybe Google is just bias. Part of the dream is that you'll be wildly successful and never have to work again. That's yep. definitely part of the dream. Sure. Uh, I think I would like to consider myself a realist. I think I was always, uh, well, as we know, you keep your options open. I keep my options open. <laughs> I, I like to be realistic about it. I think that I always believed that that was a pretty low probability outcome. Sure enough, you know, spoiler alert didn't happen. Uh, well, it didn't not happen. Well, okay. So the rest of the story is we get, get venture funding. We spend, Two years, a year and a half, whatever, we, we build a product. It was called Mitro. You can go search for it. It's out there. Um, or there's some articles about it still. Are, are, all, are, are the numbers public or, or private? 
about this. Which kind of numbers? Stuff. Like how much money you spent in a year or two? I don't remember exactly how much money we spent. So I guess that's private. I don't even remember. Okay. Uh, but not an we, insignificant sum of money. We raised a million dollars. Okay. Uh, a little bit more. I don't remember exactly. And how many people on your team? Uh, there were three of us. We had max employee count of four. We had employees from time Based to time. Based on the VC agreements. Uh, funded from this from this pool. Sure, we were paying. Because right, they don't want to. They don't want you to go hire thirty people, and then they're like, "Well, well how the hell are you going to feed that?" We just never. We just never. Uh, we never figured out our product enough to really figure out exactly what employees we needed um and we're never able to hire anyone else is really okay. the, the issue All so right. we hired we hired three people we had three different full-time employees but they were never concurrent so we only ever had four four employees total yeah uh because somebody would leave after realizing that we didn't really know what we were doing after three or six months and then we'd hire the next person and anyway um how long did that go on from money till you run out of money. How how long did you guys burn? Well, for? we never actually we didn't actually run out of money, but it was a, probably about eighteen months. Let's say okay, I think it was right. about eighteen months. I think the total adventure was a little over two years. That, and at what point in that process did you realize either we don't have enough fuel to really take let this yeah, take off, there, or the idea isn't technically going to work, or whatever yeah. the problems are? I don't know exactly. Yeah, what the, the, the the real problem was we weren't building a product that was high enough value. We couldn't figure out how to sell it. So in short, we didn't have enough customers, and we couldn't figure out how to sell the thing that we were making. But did you have code that was worth something? Um, probably not. Given that. We, you know, we couldn't find anyone who was willing to pay us for this product. So therefore, you know, in to a certain extent, it has no, it has no value. Right. To a certain yeah, extent. Okay. Um, we weren't building something that was like the only other. It's pretty rare that someone would just go and like write a pile of code and someone's going to come along and be like, wow, I, I want to pay you for this. Normally they're doing that to, to get the, to hire the talent. Um, the the aforementioned aqua hire, aqua hire, exactly. So, did you feel like that's what happened with you guys? Oh, that is what happened with us. Okay. Yeah, no doubt. So, we didn't actually run out of money. The thing, the moment that really happened for us, I think we had been struggling with. We have users. We have a few thousand users. They're using the product. We have a couple of people who we've talked about paying us, and they're willing to pay us. We're charging them some small amount of money, but this math doesn't really make sense. Like, you know, we're we're charging people. I don't know what we were charging. Let's say yeah. $5 per month per user. We have 3,000 users. That's not very much money. Um, and we're not growing very quickly. At some point, we have a meeting with our venture capital, with our, with our investors. And um, they say, you're not going to get any more money. They basically tell us flat out. They say, yeah. look, do this. We're doing this math. We're, 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 if you look at the, the numbers you're showing us and the growth rate that you're showing us, you project this out six months to when you do actually run out of money or whatever it was, 12 months, whatever our thing was. Uh, this does not look like an interesting business. We will not reinvest. And so you either Is that need, a hard day? Uh, yeah, it definitely was. Absolutely. Um, at the same time, it wasn't... I think that was the most useful piece of advice that they had ever given us because this wasn't... Cut your losses. And it was something that we had been struggling with we internally looking, you must have been aware of that absolutely you saw your burn rate you saw how much money was coming in and you we had growth. had lots of debates about how do we get more customers what do we do how should we change this how can we tweak that but i think the part that was really useful about it is that it was very very clear like this is just not good enough and it was also clear because it was like this isn't just even you need to make this five percent better and it might be good enough or ten percent better this is like you have to do something that is yeah in order 100 better, better yeah. or 200 yeah. better in right. six months 
before this is going to work out. And there was no Hail Mary idea that was going to turn this whole thing around. In retrospect, I think if we had, I think we were demoralized. And I think by that point of basically not being able to get users for our product, not being able to, to find, figure out how to, how to get that working. And I think, um, so I think we had ran out of enthusiasm. I think if we had not been so demoralized had had the optimism to say, Oh no, we can, we can make the next thing work. And more and equally importantly found an idea that we'd been like, Oh, this, this new thing, this has got it. This is a good idea. Do you think if you had a really crazy idea, even if it was a massive pivot, they might've been like, Oh, we know you guys are not are responsible with the money we're giving you. Oh, this new thing is actually interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go in that direction. I think they would have totally been like, that's okay. fine. Go for it. So uh, the, in fact, yeah, I'd have to think about this. Um, I was going to say, I think in fact, we may have. I can't remember what our two? legal, I can't remember what our legal board agreement was. We may have in fact had the full ability to just decide whatever we wanted with them not having much recourse, but, but there was some, anyway, that's all depends on the legal goes. agreement. That yeah. depends okay. on the legal yeah, yeah. agreement. Okay. But um, yeah, so, so I they think they would have, they would have been totally happy with that. I think for, for these venture capital investors, the amount of money that they had invested in us was a rounding error. It was yeah, basically a, a waste nothing. of their time. Well, yeah. If you guys need another half million to keep going for another six months or whatever. Now it is. they may not have given us more money, but <laughs> ah. the money that they had already invested was, was more or less already gone. And if they come back, to their to their partnership by saying, well, I, I put a million dollars into these people and I came back with 250K, or they say I put a million dollars into these people and I came back with zero, basically the same thing. That's 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 right. just a rounding okay. error. So at, at that meeting though, when they say we're not going to give you any more money, yep. is there a all right, here are your exit options from our experience? Uh, there was a little bit of that, it, but it at that point in that meeting, and there was not a whole lot of discussion about that. It was basically you guys need to think about what you want to do. Maybe you should, I'm trying to remember what the term was, maybe you should uh figure out how to realize the value you've created or something like this that like was That's euphemism. basically code for yeah. figure out how you can sell Find a this, way to sell this stuff, sell this yeah. to someone. And again, to go back to, I think we had really good timing around this. One of the consequences of this bubble in venture funds that we rode to getting our early investment um, was that there was lots of companies for the most part, they were still private software companies that have been growing extremely quickly and were desperate for talent. So I'm thinking here, Dropbox, Uber, Stripe, Airbnb, yep. um, plus all the companies that were public, like Twitter, Google, Twitter, yeah. Facebook, the usual suspects. It really, so for them, let's say that they come to you and numbers are irrelevant, but I'm just throwing a number out here, sure. right? Yep. They come to you guys and they say, listen, we really, we really want you and VJ. Yep. We'll, not only give you a quarter million dollars a piece for uh, salary, but we'll also give you a half million dollars for the company. That's worth it to them. So basically buy out something that's not really worth anything just to get you guys is almost like a weird signing bonus. Companies do this <clears throat> less now, I think, than but at, the time, at that, was that time. The thinking? That was part of the thinking. The thinking was we can get these people who are sort of have worked together. They'll continue to work together. We're going to bring them in and They're pros. They have built a company. So, so they know something about all this kind of so stuff. It's, you know, recruiting people is expensive. And so spending a couple hundred thousand dollars. Extra, have you seen this guy's bio? He has a PhD so, from MIT. I think that's part of the theory. <laughs> I think the, I think, I think the reason companies are doing less of it now is I think that they've figured out, Oh, this actually probably wasn't a very smart way to, for us to spend right. our money. But that's and the way it was really back then. There was, I think the, there's a there. It, it was definitely a little 
bit of a bubble in terms of uh, excitement for for talent and uh, demands for the companies to you need to grow. You don't have enough software engineers. You don't have enough people. Grow faster. Do whatever you got to do. Whatever do it grow. is. And so, okay, great. We're going to throw money at this problem. So where'd you end up? So we ended up working at Twitter. So uh, and do they like? I don't. Again, I don't want like numbers or whatever it is. But do I'm they not even going to tell you numbers in this case? <laughs> I know. But do, do, I mean, is that the kind of thing where they're like, we'll give you a bunch of stock in order to come here, and we'll also take whatever IP you had, or is it actual money? Um, you don't have to answer that. It makes you uncomfortable. Was, I'm just yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's uh, it's some combination of both. I think the way it worked for us is for the most part, we got a very standard employment package that we would have gotten going to work, go, let's say, through the front door, going interviewing and, and getting a job. We got a right. very standard employment package. So in the, in the software industry, that generally looks like you get stock, you you get a chunk of stock, you get it distributed to you over four years. Yeah. You don't get any of it unless you're there for one year, um, and then you get some sort of a salary. I think the except the the part that came from this coming through an acquisition was they gave some company to the they gave some money to the company which basically went back to the investors because the company right. yeah. ceased to we, exist. You got to pay back the VC. We got we got some money back to our investors and um our employment packages were better than normal. They weren't um like right. they weren't again they weren't yeah. i'm still working in fact i left yeah. i left twitter after two years right. so like they weren't like oh my god this is life-changing money were, were, but it was very were they grants or options how uh, does that work twitter at that time is a publicly traded company so their their packages is, is straight up stock but they were vested as you got them or That's did correct. you have to stay That's there correct. for so a certain you have, amount you have of to stay there for one year you get a quarter of it at the one year mark and then i think for twitter it was they give you a chunk every quarter after that Okay, so by the time you left, you invested all the stuff that you had done, so it was like worth staying there that long. Well, you know I, mean, I mean, I I walked away from some of my stock package because oh, okay. I, I was at Twitter for a year and a half or yeah. something, and maybe the Twitter stock is going down while you're there. I don't, it, I don't remember exactly. It definitely what it was. was. It definitely was. So I, I, so your, your I, options may have been underwater or close to I less left, valuable than I they. left Twitter after one round of layoffs. They had another round of layoffs after I a little Doing while well after now, I had left. Pardon me? Doing well now. Well, and they just got hit shortly after Facebook had their oh, yeah, record yeah, yeah, beating yeah, drop. Yeah, yeah. Twitter stock is down right now. But yes, uh, as, of, let's years, say, as of well. like six months ago, I'm definitely sitting here going like, crap, I sold Twitter stock at half this price. Yeah. Whoops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, hindsight 2020, you know, never know what life's going to hold. So. But look at you, but you had that adventure. You're like Odysseus, like coming I, back at the end of that and being like, I've done the thing. I've started, I've been an entrepreneur. I've gotten VC money. It's, I've, it's a great way to fail. I, I, yeah. I always like to say our startup was a failure because we failed to build a product that people wanted, but it was, it was a great way to fail because I and think a story for your kids someday. Yeah, it was great. Or it was, it was, it was an amazing podcast. It was an amazing podcast. experience. So, so do you feel like you're, uh, uh, because you've, you've done that, you've gotten your PhD, yep. you've started a company. Yep. Now you're working for some other company. Yep. yep. Do you feel like, okay, is, is there any sort of element of this world that you haven't experienced? Oh that, yeah. What is that? Lots. So, so uh, the reason I'm at Blue Core right now and the thing that's been interesting about it is it is it is the startup growth adventure that I was looking for that 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 we didn't have. So with less I, responsibility on you. Well, I mean, different responsibility. Uh okay. yes, I'm not I'm not an ultimately responsible founder and, yeah. you know, uh board member and all that kind of stuff. Yes. So yeah, less responsibility. Um 
So I met the Blue Core people because we shared an office. So we we were subletting an office uh, from Stack Overflow in the financial district. We moved yep. in there as a four person company. Blue Core moved in as a four person company when our company was failing and we were going for tw- to work at Twitter. We were buddies with those guys. A year or so later, <clears throat> I'd known some of them. They were about a fifteen or twenty person company, and so I uh, stayed in touch and talked to them after I had I was leaving Twitter and turns out to have been much more interesting than I thought it was. And they had become a 70 person company at that point. And like, I was like, holy crap, how are you? Well, how is this happening? And so, and did they need your expertise? Um, I'd like to say yes. Uh, hopefully I've been helpful there. You'd have to go ask my boss. Um, yeah, that was also part of what I was looking for is um, one of the parts of software engineering that I really like is, is, is scaling the product that is making it work for more users and more data. I think those are really interesting. There's interesting technology problems. And there's also interesting software engineering problems as it happens, which is like, how do you get this now larger team of people to actually be able to productively work on one application together? Right. Um, That requires different things. If you're three people working together or 30 people together or working or 300 people working together. Yeah. Um, So anyway, so, so that's the part that about blue core that maybe sort of take the take the job initially and that's absolutely part of the reason that i'm still there now is it's twice the size as it was when i joined and so my job now is very different the company is very different um it's evolving um and so and so that's i i am in the middle of what i hope will become a sort of successful startup growth story for that but you know even if it's not ultimately successful it will have been very interesting to have been involved in a company that has gone through that kind of growth yeah. you, you you had the embryonic stage startup right you're now like the middle stage the the product struggle sort of thing which frankly is not my strength these guys have a product it's whether or not it'll survive in the marketplace and and it has to continue to evolve as the marketplace evolves it needs to you know get better and attract more people and also there's there's it's 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 it is much more of the iterative stage of the journey that frankly i think i'm probably better at than the like let's create a new thing you have a blank page evan make something right i'm good at parts of that but the parts that i'm good about that are the parts that are challenging to sell (laughs) yeah fair enough yeah 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 so the um all right i i have i have two questions for you great one is why is the i mean i understand from a ip money control point of view why companies want proprietary stuff but things like html and tcp ip and these industry standards have created so much value by having a thing that no one owns that is a platform that everyone could build upon right and yet as we were walking down the street from dinner you know you we said something about trying to get a hold of a friend of ours and oh well, they're using iMessage and I'm using oh, yeah. SMS. Yeah, yeah. And there's like this lack of interoperability. Yep. It seems to me there are so many fundamental things in the software world that would be better off if the top 10 big companies got together and said, all right, let's figure out over the next six months these 10 things and come up with protocols that we can all build upon. Yeah. That'll be better for everybody, including the entire world and security and all the things like you were saying, software as a service. Yeah. And yet uh, they don't do it. I I think there's very interesting um, incentives. There's very interesting incentives. And I think that I think is interesting is I'm, uh, I think at least over the, the very long term, let's say lifetime sort of things, I'm not sure the 
part that point that we're in is is necessarily a stable point that is i think that these things will continue to shift so uh the example that i like to think about here is um is operating systems because when i was first getting introduced to computers windows ruled the world yep and microsoft was like the most valuable yep. company on earth Bill now Gates linux the most, rules the world <laughs> exactly right and um and who would have ever thought that 30 years ago so the crazy part was we're going to create at least the core of the operating system and we're just going to give it away for free. And it's just going to be created by the people who are going to collaborate with it on the internet. Like that's insane. How can that possibly work? That that is the foundation of everything. We're t- like, and people are listening to this right now because Linux is feeding them that. Feed. Right. If you, it's, it's in, it's in billions of Android devices. It's on yeah. all of the cloud servers that yep. are serving you all of this stuff. It may not be on the end user devices that people use well, except, on your for, except for Android, device. except for Android. Yeah. But it is it is running everything yeah. and and why well even, because it was a totally yeah. different approach to the market microsoft yeah. was like well we're going to charge for yeah. this operating system thing and so linux just came and blew that up and said screw it we're just going to give it away i mean even mac os sitting on a mock dalvik kernel or whatever the hell it is that's still a unix kernel underneath it that they give away so i mean even that the fundamentals of it are free software yeah, at a certain level to a certain extent although i think apple is very much more in the microsoft model you buy oh certainly all the stuff on top of it you yeah. right there but ultimately it's unix underneath yeah, sure know? and so there is some shared technology dna yeah. but um so but you, I think, that's you very think that we're like too early in the in the life cycle of all the stuff to lay down standards is that where you're gonna no i just think that i think that uh i think in general i agree with your point i think for the good of the world, a lot of these things would be better if they were set on open standards that were, to a certain extent, maybe freely available or more freely available. Like the 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 messaging one is one, like why the hell yeah. do we not just have one messaging standard that all of that, these clients and they just all work sit on top of yeah and it works well and well we sort of had that it was the text messaging thing and then but then the phone carriers that controlled that were moving too slowly. So Apple was like, screw it. We're going to do our own thing. And then WhatsApp emerged because they were like, well, we, people are charging so much for these text messages. And so now you have this weird world where there's like yeah. 10 million messaging apps because these things happen. And I think that will continue to evolve. Like, I don't think there was going to be a stable winner it, for some of these things. There will be for a, others, but there's a podcast called security. Now this guy, Steve Gibson writes, and he's like one of these guys who still writes assembly. Yep. You know what I mean? Like yep. low level guys sure. been around since yep. PDP eights and stuff like that. Right. Yep. And he talks a lot about somebody who will like, Oh, the telegram or one of these like yeah. messaging services will, messaging will yeah. roll their own encryption stack. And yep. he's just like, no, that is a solved problem. Like yep. there's no reason to start from scratch on that. Yep. There are open libraries that are exactly what everyone should be using. They've been yes. beat up for 20 years Public key encryption is not something you start from scratch because you're going to have way more bugs that way, you know, and I feel like there's a lot of stuff like that now. And I guess some of it is just, I don't know, weird marketing capitalistic advantage at a certain level. But so I think like any sort of invention or creation, like uh, you, if you want to make something better, you have to change something. Yep. Unless, unless the current state of the universe is perfection, which is not in basically anything you got to change something. And so I agree with that comment. In, and for most engineering, you should absolutely not reinvent the wheel. And job number one is figure out what pre-existing components we're going to use to solve this problem because that's going to get, get you the solution much faster and cheaper and more reliably. 
but you're going to want to do something yourself yeah. somebody because otherwise, be- otherwise you're just like repackaging somebody else's thing. That's right, not right, 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 right. So, so I think the creative part of the process is to figure out which, which piece of this is wrong. Yeah, yeah, Which yeah. piece of this stack of stuff that we're assembling? Or what superset of something can I build on top of this? Or no longer makes sense. Yeah. Right, right, right. But it's weird when people go into like really basic things and are trying to reinvent them. It's like, just work on the higher level stuff. Like stop yeah. going down and like redesigning right. kernels of stuff right. you know, or whatever. Although right. again, like this goes back to this sort of scale optimization question. There are, there are always some domains, some areas where that improvement, that, that, whatever that performance is, whatever that dimension is, whether it's cost, whether it's performance or whatever, even if it's a small one might matter for some, some, some angle. The, the crazy one that is a common poster child for this is the finance industry has all of this sort of low latency stuff that yeah. frequently is bucketed. We're going to drill trading. through mountains so we can get one meter less fiber cable or whatever, which, you know, I'm not going to talk about whether or not this is a, a good application of resources or not, but Certainly in that domain, it is worth a lot of cost to get 5% better or 1% better. Yep. And again, for Google scale, if you can make their stuff 1% more efficient, that translates into millions of dollars of savings. And that's actually probably a lot of electricity for you for inventing it. So, you know, it sort of depends for, for most people that 1% is, uh, you won't notice, but. Okay. My last question is purely for me. All right. Can you explain to me? a scenario where I would need to use a pivot table and how it works. (laughs) You know, I literally used a pivot table today. Not, not joking. I have, I have Uh, very limited, (laughs) I have very limited experience writing SQL commands and doing queries from servers. I can do that on a level that, you know, most people can't, but obviously not on a level that's whatever it is, but I've never, I, I don't understand databases enough to understand what the point of a pivot table is. Yeah. So, uh, I barely do either because that's really the domain of the spreadsheets. Uh, that's oh, like it an ex- is. Okay. it's like an Excel feature in particular, but the, um, but it's like a way to like almost like mesh in a third dimension, multiple tables, right? Well, right. So the way, so the way it works is you'll have, uh, you'll have data that has, uh, multiple dimensions. So in the case that I was looking at, we, um, so blue core sells software to customers and so I was looking at usage of this feature divided by, uh, broken up by customer. So uh, over the last three months. So how, how often have these different customers used this feature? So the raw data is what month is it? Is it August or is it July? Yep. What part, what customer is it? And, you know, the account of how often they used it. Some amount that. of hours or minutes or whatever. But of right. course, when you have that, that's not, that's really, really low level. What you really want to know is like, well, show me a graph of like, what was the usage over the last few months in total? Or what was the use for, what was the use um, by this, by this, uh, by customer over the total range? So what you want to do is this is, this is the pivot table part. You want to pivot it. So this thing, which is now like a column becomes the like X axis of becomes a row basically. And so you're summing or you're aggregating over some dimension inside your table is is what you're doing. And so, and so that was why I used a pivot table today and and why you might want to use it is you have some raw data and you want to aggregate on some dimension that's inside that. It's just one of those things that like I've read descriptions of exactly what it's like. I've been waiting for some sort of situation where I would need one just so I could grok. And you know what I mean? Like it's, it feels like I need, Oh no, I need an example of that. I'd actually be doing it. That kind of makes me go, Oh, I get it. Okay. I, today was literally the, the first First time I can remember 
being like, oh, this was actually a useful use of this feature because I somebody had asked me this question about like, oh, how often has this thing been used? And I was like, okay, well, I have the really raw data, but I really want the graph of show me this over with the months. Can yeah. I? I think that's what this feature does, and sure enough, that's it is what. How, how's your visual basic skills? Oh, non-existent. Do not. I. That is a language. That's what I a lot of people. Some people are amazing. Can do amazing stuff in Excel. Yes. Um, you don't even need to know the visual basic part to do amazing things in Excel, though. You just need to know how to do some of the crazy spreadsheet formula stuff. See, I was planning on spending like an hour talking to you about nuclear weapons, <laughs> but we've run so long. We'll have to do that another time. But the. Uh, Amazing. Thank you for coming over. That, yeah, of course. Anytime. Uh, I know I got you talking about really in-depth stuff, but indeed, I think it's worthwhile. We'll see how it turned out. Yeah, I'll be interested. Uh, uh, you're not a social media guy. I have a Twitter account. That's the only social media that I'm on. Uh, I have my I have an old-fashioned website with a blog that you can subscribe to if you have an RSS feed reader. You know, this is dinosaur technology at this point. Uh, so yeah, find me at evanjones.ca. Okay. Or EPC Jones on Twitter. Keep, keeping your keeping your Canadian roots. I like it. Exactly. I've had that website since uh, well before I lived in the United States. And you hand-coded it, didn't you? I think I guess I could probably still do in some way. <laughs> it's, 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 anyway, that's a whole other story. It's running software that I wrote. Oh, yeah. That's so cute. It's like, a, <laughs> it's like this archive of another, uh, like an artifact of another time. It really is. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Evan. We'll talk yeah. to you soon. Cheers. 